Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero Podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. We're on a milestone of an episode here, number 50. For those of you who may have missed our last podcast, we did have to unfortunately cancel the stream for last week's, but we did still record the episode. So the VOD is up on the usual places, YouTube, Spotify, and the other links on Anchor. Uh, we just we just didn't stream it, unfortunately. So if you missed that, you can check those out there. We also have a follow-up video to our programming language discussion from two weeks ago, coming on Thursday this week at 8 a.m. Uh, last time we touched on if programming is necessary for security research. This week will be a discussion on what programming languages are useful to know and getting into some of the nuances of that and where they can be applied in security. Today, our layout will be a little bit different than usual. We'll be starting off with a bit of news and research about fuzzing using GPUs, talking about some exploits and RCEs, including GitHub bugs, a free type vulnerability being exploited in the wild. Um, and then we'll circle back to some news because Antti may actually be joining us at the tail end of the episode to uh, to give some insights on those topics. No guarantees, um, but you know we'll, we'll see if uh, he's able to join us today because that'll be really cool. Now that that's out of the way, we can jump into some news. So YouTube, YouTube DL. So many of you may have heard of it. It's a tool to be able to download videos from YouTube. So the it was open source on GitHub and the source code, the repository was uh, seasoned assisted. So I know you have some thoughts on this C, so I'll, I'll let you take this one away because uh, this one this one has a bit of drama attached to it. Yeah, well, there's drama attached to it. I don't know how much we're going to dig into that. I did just find, like, even though this isn't directly security-related, there is a lot of overlap between kind of what's going on here and some of the lines that we may cross in developing, like, security tools and things like that. Um, now, I'll be honest. I kind of agree with a lot of the sentiment that DMCA sucks. The whole copyright system kind of needs to be updated to, you know, the modern world. Um, even so... I do have to kind of land a little bit on the RIAA side here. Um, I think they have a fair case that, you know, YouTube DL does cross the line, even though we can kind of look at this as being, um, as being an example where you've got a dual purpose tool. Once again, I kind of mentioned how with like exploit scripts with, you know, the general kind of hacking tools, they're always dual purpose. They could be used maliciously, but in theory, they're designed to be used um, when you have legal permission to be doing whatever you're doing. Um, and so that intent kind of matters. So what the RIA is kind of claiming here is that YouTube DL, um, the, uh, here's where they say that the clear purpose of the source code is to circumvent the technological protection measures used by authorized streaming services and to reproduce and distribute music videos and sound recordings owned by the RIA's member companies. Um, it, it hinges on that question of what is the clear purpose of the source code? Is the clear purpose actually the intent to circumvent these things or is it something else? Is it something less nefarious, less malicious? Um, on those points though, on the second point, I think everybody can kind of agree it is there to reproduce the content uh not necessarily music videos but it is there to reproduce the videos to download them to, or even to pull down the uh i guess it pulls down the video and converts it to mp3 but to get the audio circumventing the technological protections is one of the more crucial points uh with dmca you're given certain fair or free use 
uh, what is it, fair, fair use exemptions. And the issue with those is most of them, you've got the fair use, but if you have to either violate terms of service from one of the providers, or if, um, in this case, you have to circumvent some sort of uh, protection mechanism, you no longer have that fair use. Uh, like the fair use doesn't include bypassing certain things or operating against like the terms of service or needing to break other laws in order to obtain that fair use. Uh, so you can argue whether or not YouTube's rolling cipher and how they kind of store the URLs and change the URLs is actually an example of uh, defeating a copy protection mechanism. But as far as I'm aware, it is a very, very trivial uh, bar that you have to pass when it comes to defeating copy measures. Uh, one case I can remember, this is quite a while back, there's a DRM service. All they did was they would take like, I want to say an MP4, might have been another file format. They take a video file format though, they would change like the first few bytes of it to be the name of their DRM. So basically just clobbering the magic number so like your normal video player couldn't actually open the file. And they called that a copy protection and filed a DMCA claim when somebody undid that by replacing the few uh, bytes at the start of a file with the appropriate header. So, I mean, it doesn't take very much to be considered circumventing a copy protection. Basically, if there's intent for whatever that feature is to protect the content and you go around it, it's pretty clear that you're circumventing it, even though it's insanely trivial at times. It's unfortunate because there are people that definitely have legitimate use cases that aren't circumventing copy protection. Uh, there's somebody I know that said that they use this tool for pulling down like their own videos and stuff like that, or even just pulling down podcasts that don't include like music or copyrighted content, but they just want to listen to them um, without having to use YouTube, right? Because YouTube kind of sucks for listening on mobile. Unless you have YouTube Red or whatever it's called, you have to keep the phone unlocked and, and uh, the screen on to be able to listen to videos. So that's kind of the reason why people like to pull stuff off of YouTube. Um, but this yeah, is well, exactly DLC why he uses it too. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. But this is exactly why you try to keep your repos as white room as possible to prevent anything that can be used against you when you're doing projects where it's in a company's best interest to try to take down your stuff. Uh, it's the reason why I'm extremely careful with the PS4 toolchain repo, for example. Uh, some people have wanted to add definitions and stuff. Uh, from things that seem suspiciously copied and pasted. And I just, I won't allow it because I don't want to open up that opportunity for Sony to come in and be like, this repo is using pirated material, take it down. That being said, kind of, you kind of touched on it earlier. Unfortunately, with the horrible US legal system, your stuff can get DMCA'd for any reason, even if it wouldn't hold up. And companies have to abide by it. I saw some people on Twitter and whatnot attacking GitHub and Microsoft for complying with the DMCAs. And that's not really fair. Companies have to comply with those DMCAs. So it's just... Well, they don't have to comply, uh, but you're, you're basically going to. I mean, when you don't comply, you, you do take on liability for it. So you, you have to risk. be confident that it is not, and that in this case, the RIA would not win the legal case. Um, at least, I mean, I, we should clarify, neither of us are lawyers. Uh, so definitely not like 
a lawyer might come in and counteract some things we're saying, but in the best of our understanding, at least. Yeah, that, that's important to note. Something I wanted to add on was, as much as the source code was DMCA'd, there was a tweet that meant, now I, I was going to bring it up on stream, but since it contains a link to technically the, the source code that is has been DMCA'd, I probably won't bring it up on stream just to, you know, cover us. But um, it seems there's a security bug with GitHub where you can attach commits to repos even if you don't control them. And somebody decided to uh, use a, use that to troll the, uh, the RIAA to attach the uh, YouTube DL source code to the DMCA repository. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I thought that I was kind that. of a funny troll. Um, yeah, it's funny. It comes from doing the PR on it, basically. It's still, the, the branch still gets added, so that's how they're able to have like the blob that was part of the ER branch. Yeah, okay. I meant to look into it a bit more, but I never got around to it. But. Yeah, there's a post on Hacker News where I believe the guy who did it actually details how that worked. Uh, it might have been somebody else, but I believe it was him. That said, I do want to jump back, just kind of talking about some of the issues here. One that I only kind of touched on is that dual purpose thing. And where YouTube DL, I think, really made the mistake, because so far everything I've said really only YouTube could come after them for that. YouTube can come after them for bypassing those copy protection mentions, uh, not the RIAA. The RIAA needs to kind of have their own damages, and that's where I think YouTube DL kind of ended up crossing the line. Uh, because in their kind of test code, the code that tests um, just a lot of the edge cases, so areas that have particular protections that aren't just on most video files, uh, different embedding restrictions, different ways of doing the URL. They have a huge list of test cases that when you execute just their test, that when you execute the test suite, it'll download the first, like, the first block or like 10 kilobytes of all of these files just to make sure it can get around those protections to ensure like it's able to download properly. It makes sense, it's testing its own features, but that also ends up establishing because they use these copyright videos in those test suite. Um, and that's where the videos that they actually call out in here, the like Justin Timberlake and Taylor Swift and Icona Pop videos, those are all test case videos that they use. So like the YouTube deal test suite specifically shows its own intent to download these copyrighted videos. And that's where showing that intent to commit copyright file or to uh, violate copyright is where YouTube DL kind of cross line. It's where RIA is able to establish their case because they're specifically RIA's property that they are distributing code to get around the protective measures to download. Um, so when it comes to our security tools, it's kind of a similar thing where, say, you develop a command and control uh, piece of software or a remote access tool. Like, you could use that legitimately, just like you can use YouTube DL legitimately. But when you show the intent, the software has a more malicious nature. So you can advertise a remote access tool for spying on your ex or you can advertise as like parental controls or something. Only one of those is really going to cause much of a legal issue. 
it's kind of a similar case here, but now since YouTube DL has done that and has used that copyright code, or sorry, that co the copyrighted downloads, it, it kind of spoils the entire tool because the entire tool has stated its intent is to do this. So just removing those test cases, I don't think will legally be enough to get YouTube DL back up. Yeah, and that, that's something that people might not consider when they're doing, you know, GitHub, like open source GitHub projects. Even if you delete files that you think could be used legally against you, you would have to make sure you delete it in previous commits as well. Because if, you know, the company is thorough enough that's that wants to take you down and goes, goes commit surfing, they could find those older files, even if you delete them after the fact. So... That is another thing with the PS4 toolchain that I've been very mindful of. You know, you 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 don't want it at any point in time, uh, because you just don't want to have to deal with the headache. Yeah, I mean, it establishes the intent and the foothold for, in this case, the RIA. In your case, Sony. Yeah. Um, that's basically all I have to say on that. I just, I think it's important to recognize how easily you can cross that line. Just in how you word and display things, it doesn't actually have to be how you're using it, as long as that intent can be shown. Yeah, and that's important because people are speculating that this is going to be, if this gets challenged in court or whatever, this could be like a landmark uh, legal precedent for other projects going forward. So Yeah, in fairness, um, I do want to call things like it is only downloading the 10 kilobytes of the file, not the entire thing, but it is doing the copy protection or it is bypassing the copy protection. But like there is room to say, well, it's not actually downloading yet. Like there's some wiggle room there. Um, this is like RA kind of prompted on this one based on the ruling of a regional German court. Uh, so DMCA isn't just the US. Um, several countries have kind of signed on to protect copyright in a similar or the same way. Uh, I'm not sure what the treaty is for that, but other countries are involved with that. So the RA is kind of making the claim based on a similar case in Germany, whether or not that's going to hold in the U S is yet to be seen. Yeah. That being said, I think we can move on to some research. So this is some research into whether or not it's viable or feasible to move fuzzing from CPU oriented to GPU oriented. Now, this is cool because leveraging GPUs for fuzzing has been something that's been talked about for a while. I think it's kind of been augmented by a bit of the hype surrounding the NVIDIA 3000 series launch that's happening at the moment, uh, even though that's a disaster in and of itself. Um, but, but GPUs are cool and have been used for heavy computing and paralyzable tasks for a while now. You know, mining, folding at home, AI, supercomputers are basically massive GPU clusters. And what makes it appealing is because it's easier to scale GPUs because of things like SLI, a scalable link interface. Although that's kind of being killed by NVIDIA too, but that's a separate topic. But GPUs are just really good at putting through a lot of raw calculations and running things in parallel, which is why they're great for running shaders for maths for games and number crunching uh, for crypto mining, for example. But they're not so great when it comes to executing complex programs that require branching. They're just not really designed for that. So because of that, you know, up to this point, even though it might sound like a good idea, if you just consider raw power, they haven't been leveraged for fuzzing, really. Uh, and that's something they mentioned in this blog post. But they wanted to see if they could make GPUs uh, more cost effective than CPUs when it comes to fuzzing uh, in their experiment here. 
So they experimented and compared their GPU fuzzing setup against Libfuzzer. So they ran on Tesla T4 GPUs running in Google Cloud, and they compared against Libfuzzer running on a Google Compute Engine 8 core and one instance. So in their research, they detail some of the challenges they came with uh, that came along the way, along with the branching issue that I mentioned. Um, for one, GPUs run their own proprietary instruction sets. They don't run like x86 or ARM or PPC or whatever. Uh, the other problem is GPUs don't run an OS. So you don't get IO or a file system or anything that needs syscalls to back it up out of the box. Memory is also really hard to manage because there are several hierarchies that are optimized for certain types of operations. And your memory is a lot more limited because you can't just plug in a DDR4 module into a GPU. It has its own onboard um, VRAM, as it's called. So it is so more limited. A lot of challenges there. Um, one of the things, though, kind of mentioned here is without an OS, you also lose memory isolation or like process isolation and the isolation of memory between your processes, which is one of the big challenges they had because when you're writing standard software, and in this case, if you're going to be fuzzing standard software, it's going to assume that it has basically its entire memory region to itself. So the lack of an operating system also means the lack of any sort of process isolation. So all of the threads that are running on the GPU, in this case, up to 40,000 threads, are all going to be sharing the same memory. In this case, about 16 gigabytes of memory. So that only leaves like... 400 um, kilobytes or something they yeah mentioned. 419 kilobytes of memory per thread that's not a lot especially when you consider some fuzzing targets uh, that are that are like really juicy for fuzzing like browsers yeah, and although stuff. not even I, close i think we'll kind of get onto that a little bit later i did find this yeah, just to be sure. a interesting right because he did cover a lot of the challenges faced uh, you know, from their initial benchmark, didn't just go to and we built this fuzzer that like hits uh, whatever their final number was. Uh, you know, they show off here at the first on their first test case, they're comparing with live fuzzer hitting, you know, 1.9 million ex executions per second versus their own only hitting 126,000 executions per second. Like they show a huge difference there and they show how they kind of figured out all of these problems from. Uh, one of the first things was just um, how they shared memory. So they basically wrapped all of the memory access with their own function calls to read and write memory. And they had to optimize that a little bit in terms of dealing with how all the threads are executing. So like you've got warps of 32 threads executing at a time. So they made sure like those, those would all read kind of from the same block of memory to limit how many requests were coming in. They give a lot of those details. So it is worth a read. I will also uh, add a link to the description. Uh, Gamozo Labs also did kind of a response to this. Uh, and For those who don't know, he's like at. big into fuzzing. Yeah. Um, so he did his own kind of look at this same thing, implemented uh, some of his own things, just looked over it, uh, got his own stats, all of that. So it's worth reading in conjunction with this post, but just a lot of good information kind of digging into how it works and all the problems that they faced ultimately they did get up to uh 8.4 million executions per second or what that translates to is 23.9 executions per second per dollar compared with live fuzzer at 5.2 per second per dollar 
so there's a few things in here that I think are cool, even if you take them out in like isolation, like take it out of just the uh, fuzzing using the GPU setup they have. Uh, one of them was the tool uh, Remel, I think is how you say it. Um, and what this basically does is it lifts binaries to LLVM IR, and then they use that to translate the binary to PTX assembly used by the GPU. I thought just in general, that was uh, that was a really cool portion that they mentioned, how they tackled that uh, that assembly uh, language barrier, I guess. Yeah, and that's been a, like Remel or Remel has been around for at least a few years now. Um, I believe they added in support, like this project was kind of the motive error behind adding in support for, I want to say ARCH64 uh, with Remill, but I'm okay. not exactly sure about that. Uh, but yeah, it, it lifts it to LVMIR, and that's basically how they did their uh, translation, how they basically got normal code out to the GPU, which feels really like a bit of a hack to me like i don't know it how is. much i would trust that in terms of doing like your proper fuzzing uh when you have any sort of larger binary yeah so there's that and the uh, memory model stuff so this is another thing i was going to shout out just as something cool uh it, it provides some interesting insights into how the memory hierarchy works in gpus and it, it's really strange to people who aren't familiar with GPUs. Like, it was strange to me. But I think uh, that might be interesting to some people out there. But what you were mentioning with uh, that translation, as well as the the hacks they did with the memory hierarchy to get some better performance, which was really cool as well. But that does add some pretty significant noise to the fuzzing, right? You're fuzzing on an architecture that's not typically used or it's not going to be used in like real world scenarios and you're fuzzing using a memory model that is not going to be used either because you're using a GPU memory model. So when you're talking about finding like memory corruption issues and stuff like that, that is going to play a part. Maybe some bugs aren't discovered because for whatever reason, the memory corruption, it just isn't detectable when it's running uh, with the GPU memory model in mind, or maybe it's more prevalent. Like there, there are certain things that I could see being an issue when you get into the bugs themselves and how different the setup is between fuzzing on GPU compared to uh, CPU. Yeah, and as you were, or, or as we were talking about a little bit earlier, at 40,000 threads and 16 gigabytes, in the case of the Tesla T4, that is only like 419 kilobytes per thread. Like, that is not... Like, there are a lot of applications that just are not going to fit inside that. Like, any sort of complex memory structure, uh, even if it fits within that, like, I think just the the wrapping of it kind of makes any sort of complex structure a little bit difficult to actually fuzz with. As you're saying, the layout's going to be different. Um, and Gamozo Labs even mentions, like, in some cases, you might have input that's larger than the memory space that you get per thread. Now you can get around that, of course, by having a larger space and then not taking full advantage of the 40,000 threads that you can possibly run. So with that in mind, one place that I do think there's potential for this is we talked about it way back we, when we talked about the hot fuzz paper and the, the idea of micro fuzzing. I feel like that might be somewhere where you can get away with something GPU fuzzing if you were to target specific functions to fuzz. 
um not necessarily in the same sense as hoffa is where i was looking for those algorithmic issues uh, where you can cause like denial of service but just pulling out a single function or a small set of functions that you're going to continually fuzz um i feel like that is one place where this might be able to work where you can just take you can take small chunks of this code and toss them into the gpu converting it over the structures and quite going max you're really not going to find a lot of, like the use after phrase and things that really rely on a lot of the memory resource and because of the fact they're wrapping the memory access they do actually have the possibility to interpret or to add in some checks to determine certain types of overflows like hey this thing only actually allocated x bytes it's trying to read you know x times three bytes or something or it's trying to read like they can kind of add in some of those extra checks obviously performance is going to go down if you do that but they can do it could be some out. interesting instrumentation opportunities yeah yes well they do talk about intercepting bad memory access just so they don't crash the entire gpu when one thread goes off uh, but i don't know i feel like using the mic the micro fuzzing idea might be applicable here uh, that said when you're pulling out just a few functions you can also do a manual assessment on them which then do you need to do all the same fuzzing fuzzing is useful when you've got a large project but it was just something that i was thinking of where you're constrained on the size what can you do with that and perhaps pulling it out might be a fair option so I really like this uh, this research, and there were some insights in here, like I talked about earlier, that uh, I think are useful. That being said, I do have some issues as well. Something they don't seem to mention until the end is the fact that their GPU fuzzer with these benchmarks, with the uh, five or eight point four million executions per second compared to the one point nine million, I believe their GPU fuzzer is just generating test cases, and they're just measuring the throughput whereas libfuzzer is generating test cases and mutating them. Mutation is expensive, so of course the raw throughput of generated test cases without mutation is going to be higher. And that's not just because you're running it on a GPU, that's because what you're running is just easier and faster to run in general. So I do feel like it, it's a bit unfair to make that comparison there. Um, my other issue is you, you can't really use this to fuzz anything that uses non-simple I.O., like reading and writing to disk. Um, unless you implemented like a mini OS or something that's running on the GPU. And when you're getting into that territory, I feel like you're really getting into questionable ground in terms of performance and how much you're actually gaining leveraging the GPU in the first place. Because like you were saying, especially with the memory, you're going to be limiting your GPU utilization a ton by doing that wrapping. The more syscalls and stuff that you have to emulate, the the less you can leverage the GPU for doing the actual fuzzing. So to their credit, they do mention this, um, but not until the very end. Be and I saw some people linking this who didn't seem to have read that last part, uh, thinking that GPU fuzzing is something that's going to suddenly take off today or something, and we've entered a new era of fuzzing. This is just initial like academic research. There's definitely things of value here, but I think the article does try to upsell it a little bit too much. Uh, I feel like some of their concerns about having to wrap the io should have been higher up in the article maybe that's just me though um but this this is like far from ready for usage in real world like complex real world applications yeah I, though you might be able to get used for oh, some toy application just smaller like they do mention specifically embedded was one of their targets with this 
they're going to have smaller applications in that case already. So, I mean, there's definitely some fair use cases for it. They obviously had something that spawned it and spawned them working on it. There is some progress. It is something. It it just will take further research before it's either determined to be a good route to go or not really. Um, you know, it's as you said, it's the first step. I think the more promising path with leveraging GPUs for fuzzing is the AI angle. Um, you know, for like test case selection and stuff like that, I could see leveraging machine learning on the GPU side would probably be a more feasible route to go than this. That way you can leverage both the CPU, um, the higher memory capacity and easier memory model, and you can also use the GPU as well. So you're kind of getting everything you can out of all of your components. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if which path kind of takes off in the uh, in the future. Um, so we'll, we'll jump into some exploits. So our first exploit is Samsung S20. This is from F-Secure Labs. Uh, they were originally going to use this vulnerability in Pwn to Own Tokyo, but it ended up getting patched in September. So obviously that ship has sailed. So in light of that, they decided to publish the issue. It's an issue in S20's Galaxy Store, specifically through WebView. WebView, they state, is used for some of the core functionality, such as installing and launching applications. Uh, what they chose to target was the editorial activity web view, which was used for browsable intent links and NFC tags. Uh, so they, they talk about the process uh, from going from an intent link or an NFC tag to verifying the URL and processing it if it's valid. Um, and basically how they do that is they check if the URL starts with a request to uh, image.samsungapps.com over HTTP or HTTPS. The problem is they allow both HTTP and HTTPS. With HTTP, you can man in the middle the response to inject arbitrary JavaScript. And using that, you can install and launch arbitrary attacker-controlled applications as long as they're on the Galaxy Store. And the reason that's a problem is that can be an initial vector or foothold to get malware on a device. Uh, the way Samsung fixed this was they just removed HTTP from the allow list. It has to go over HTTPS now, which, yeah, which, is, which is a fair uh, solution to this. I will say um, it does have to be in the Galaxy Store, but like I said, it is like basically you've got an automatic install and open of any application within the Galaxy Store. That's definitely a usable vector. Um, and the reason this is possible, didn't quite touch on, but um, the editorial activity being used will add a JavaScript interface that can be called by the JS on the page to interact with the native galaxy store application so that's where it gets the download app and open app that's two of the interfaces that that gets provided by uh the editorial interface uh that gets added onto that web view so that's where they're kind of getting that download and open it's basically built into the application it's intended to let the official app do those features while still having a web view uh, but yeah, it's a fairly straightforward issue there. Um, HTTP bad is pretty much all you need to say about it. <laughs> Something important to note regarding the fix is even though it's fixed in 4.5.20.7, very long version number, um, they note that that may not come pre-installed with the October 2020 firmware. You may have to go into the store app and accept the prompt to update, which 
let's be honest, many of us do just choose to skip and don't want to bother with updating. We want to do what we want to do. Um, so that there is a, it is possible that this could be exploited, even though it's fixed. Um, but yeah, decently simple issue, simpler than I thought it would be considering the headline. But um, I guess this is another mantra of that keep it simple, stupid philosophy, especially when it comes to exploits. Simpler it is, um, more easy to exploit it is, and less chance of stability issues. So, yeah, to be fair with this one, like it does require an attacker that is on the local network. I think that's one of your biggest, biggest hurdles with this one is you need somebody who is able to man in the middle of your traffic. So I do say local network. In theory, they could be elsewhere too. You know, man in the middle on like one of the internet backbone routers or something. But that's a lot less likely than somebody local. Uh, basically, it does take somebody with a decent degree of access. Not not impossible. You can connect to an insecure Wi-Fi. Somebody on uh, possibly even like your work Wi-Fi. If uh, your employer doesn't... Uh, do proper client isolation. There's a lot of ways it could be abused, but it is, it's not completely remote. Yeah, which is the case sometimes with uh, with a fair bit of the issues we cover. That being said, they're, they're definitely still issues. So that's why we still cover them. So we'll move into Jitsi. So this was a technical advisory put out by NCC Group. Uh, it's Jitsi uh, Meet Electron, which is a class a cross-platform application for video conferencing and screen sharing. Um, as you can guess by the name, it uses Electron to facilitate that. What's notable about Jitsi 2 is the fact that it's fully open source. The server and client are both open source. So RCE, Electron, and the fact that anyone can run a server, you can kind of see where this is going. Um, a malicious server can run JavaScript in a client's Electron render renderer. So, Z, I don't know if you have the code up. Um, I don't know if yeah, we want to leave the code here. up for a second. Yeah, it's up. It's up? Okay. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll put the code on screen for anyone who's watching wants to take a look to see if they can quickly spot the issue uh, before we spoil it, I guess. Um, but it, as a bit of a hint, it's an issue we've talked about very recently, uh, as recently as last week with Discord. Very, very similar issue here. Um, so... We'll go ahead and spoil it now. So if you want longer to look at the code, you can pause the the video if you're if you're watching the video. If you're on the if stream, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, you're just screwed. <laughs> um, the issue here is because they don't set the browser window options properly. Uh, node integration is not specified to be false. Native Node.js methods can be accessed. So Node.js is very powerful. Uh, you can use it to execute native code. Um, like I said earlier, this issue is very similar to the Discord issue we covered last week. There's a lot of overlap with that topic regarding how this works. Um, now, I did look at the fixed code as well. And what was interesting was they set the uh, node integration to tr uh, false, but they didn't set context isolation, which was the root of the issue that we covered last week with Discord. So that Discord attack may be able to transfer over here to hit this in a similar way. Um, but that being said, the issue itself with node integration was fixed in version 2.0. Uh, the impact is also limited because kind of similar to the last one, there, there's a, a barrier there. You need to be able to, you need the victim to connect to a rogue server, which is a pretty big requirement on the victim's part. Uh, looking yeah, at this, timeline, this does kind of come to a similar case where don't connect to suspicious places. If somebody randomly gives you a Jitsi server, 
maybe, you know, use a little bit of of your brain to decide whether or not they're worth trusting to connect to. And that just goes for everything, you know, don't visit random websites people are linking to um, unless you trust the person. Uh, don't connect to random IRCs, all of that. It, In theory, like all of those are just further attack services. Now, of course, there are places you're going to want to connect to. You can't just live, well, you could live just completely disconnected. Most of us aren't going to go that Having route, but it is one of those cases where if you're using your head a bit, unless, you know, somebody's social engineer, like you actually fall for a social engineer or, you know, somebody betrays your trust, something like that. The issue isn't huge as long as you're aware. Of course, there are a ton of people that just aren't really aware, aren't really thinking of security. So it's not like it's an impractical attack, you know, take... Uh, take like a bunch of students or something, uh, some high school students, friend links a friend to compromise them or something like that's totally fair. Could happen. There's a lot of people that just aren't thinking about security, but if you are, it is just that simple. You know, trust the links you follow. As uh, as said from chat by uh, XCHLE, random websites are the best. You never know what you get. There you go. Just just browse the internet uh, as su surprise boxes. Just go to every uh, link you visit. Um, ma so mandatory slash as. Respond, Marcus Seventh. They can't do much to you by just clicking the website though. Browser exploits. It would. It's yeah. kind of the same situation as here. In this case, it's a Jitsi exploit. Obviously, this is much easier to pull off. Odds are, uh, well, depending on who you are, people probably aren't dropping browser OAs on you. Um at least for most people, uh, whereas this is at least a lot easier to kind of find and pull off. The other um, less sophisticated and more skiddy attack that you're left vulnerable to by just visiting random websites is silly things like IP grabbers. Um, that, that's something that, that used to plague chats. I don't know if it still does, but yeah, definitely a, a potential concern. Um, dr Drive-bys you're probably not going to get hit by a drive-by in all honesty, but there is the potential for that. So you might as well just cover yourself by not visiting links you don't trust. And I mean, the IP grabbing, like every website gets your IP. That's, I don't even think that's a real concern. Yeah. So looking at the timeline, the issue was reported on April 3rd. Uh, it was fixed on April 8th, but they wanted to wait for the update to propagate before allowing any details uh, to be published around that. So that's why it was only published last week. Um, it will be cool to see if someone tries the Discord type attack by hitting the context isolation. Could be another CVE. Uh, there we go, living up to the day zero tagline, uh, you know, dropping zero days. Could could be uh, something that somebody out there could look into. So two-factor authentication disabled with wrong password. So this was reported on Hacker One. Um, our next re this report has almost nothing uh, to go off of because it's a limited disclosure, uh, but it's a 2FA auth disable in WaveCell, which seems to provide APIs for SMS chat applications. Um, from the summary, it seems like if an, if an attacker can get a session hijack or something, they can change the password without even using the right password in the first place due to a yeah. logic flaw. My thought was perhaps even something like a C-Surf could be used here. It doesn't give us a lot of information, as you said. I thought was perhaps you could hit this using a C-Surf uh, with the wrong password, disable somebody's 2FA just by having them like visit your page. 
and get that request uh, fired off. Not sure if that would be possible. Like I said, they don't really give us enough information, but it's one of those cases where it seems like the developers have to remember to implement the security everywhere that it's necessary rather than having a centralized security mechanism. Uh, you know, if you have something centralized, there's a fair chance that things like this just don't happen because everything passed through the same route. So you can just do the do the check in one place rather than having developers need to remember it. Which seems like a likely situation here where somebody just forgot to add the validation in one place. Yeah, so obviously not a lot of details. Uh, does seem like a pretty damn silly bug. I feel like ensuring your password verification on something as significant as a 2FA disable is, is something very basic to get right. But uh, I guess yeah, that's, for sure. there's there's a bit of a PSA there, I guess. Check your logic, even if you think it works. Uh, you may think it works and it's obvious. Obviously, it'll check the password here. Test it, because um, you know that that's not always the case as much as people like to think it is. Yeah, well, I guess that also is a case of, you know, do you just test the correct case where you enter the right password? Okay, it works, so it's all good. Versus testing the wrong password, which obviously was missed here. Yeah. So, we're revisiting an old friend, HTTP request smuggling in Node.js. So, yeah, this is due one... to how Node.js handles carriage returns in HTTP headers. Sorry, Z, I'll, uh, I'll let you continue there. Yeah, I was just going to say, this one's kind of interesting because it's definitely an unexpected conversion that gets performed. Apparently in Node, when it's uh, before parsing everything uh, during the processing, it'll take the carriage return character if it's in a header and replace it with a hyphen. That, like, that just seems like a weird thing to do, but it creates a situation, as in this report, if you were to send a header that's something like content carriage return length as the header, uh, any sort of front proxy is not going to see that as a content length header. It's just a header of content and then a separate length header. Um, but when Node sees it, because it does this extra processing, replacing that carriage return, it sees it as a content length header. So that creates the possibility for a desync attack, which we have talked about a ton this past year. I just thought it was really interesting because I don't see why Node is doing that processing. Like, especially to make it a, a dash or a hyphen rather than something else. But I don't get why it was doing this in the first place. And it does seem like the Node dev did indicate... Um, that they don't know why, like, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, Node.js does not convert CR to hyphens and would treat this header as, you know, content or length. Uh, sorry, carriage return length. Uh, that's what the Node.dev comes. It's like, but if you go ahead and run the sample code, it definitely does it. And it is an issue, and they agree to that. It, it just seems like a really weird thing to have been done. Seems like one of those weird pieces of code that was written a while ago by somebody who might not be on the project anymore or something, and people just weren't aware of that strange behavior and it wasn't documented. Um, so HTTP request smuggling is like a really cool topic to talk about. It's probably like my favorite web issue just because of how weird it is. Um, and it's also pretty impactful. Like this, this type of issue can be used for cache poisoning, account takeover, uh, session hijacking. It's a pretty powerful attack. And because of that, this received a pretty high impact rating. I think it was at a uh, 8.5 severity on HackerOne. Um, 
So yeah, received a high impact rating, was fixed in September at, in a September security release on September 15th. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there was a payout for this. Node does pay out, but only for Node.js core issues. They don't pay out for Node.js.org or other project websites. So I'm, I'm guessing that's why they didn't uh, do a payout here, even though it was a high severity issue. But um, I mean, yeah, this does cool seem like this is in the core node. Uh, like this I, I is in node.js.org. Personally, uh, in my opinion, I think this should have been paid out. Yeah, but, I, I mean, I guess I this in order to exploit this, it does depend on the client setup also you know running that reverse proxy in front of node which honestly in these days is going to be a pretty common setup where you do have something in front of node not just running node exposed to the internet but yeah it does seem i didn't even look at what the bounty payoff was so i didn't notice that they didn't pay it out at all that said node is an open source project i do believe they're like i don't think they have like huge payouts in general I, know well, we've I covered... think their payouts are in the thousands. Um, last see, I, looked, I think 10,000 for severity or so. Okay, maybe... Uh, uh, 1,500 for high severity, high impact. I just pulled up there. Okay, fair enough. I might have been thinking of something else then that had the, the high impact. Yeah, 1,500, okay. I was thinking yeah, of something so else. All of these do say... Um, minimum is demonstrate the presence of a security bug with probable remote exploitation potential. I, they do say, um, yeah, critical, okay, critical vulnerabilities, so arbitrary code execution. Uh, it does seem like they're basically looking for code execution issues for a lot of these payouts, and that are remotely exploitable if you want a payout, so that's probably where this comes, because it isn't, it can be used, it depends a lot on the setup of the target application, in terms of what you're going to be able to do with it, what information you can leak. So definitely, I'd still say like this feels like one of those things that really could have used an exception to that. I agree. Yeah, this feels like a bit of tunnel vision on the uh, on the payout criteria. Yeah, but given that criteria, I do kind of understand where they're coming from. They don't want to be paying out just for absolutely everything as an open source project. They probably don't have a lot of funding to go towards paying out the bounties. And I mean, 1500 is already pretty fair for what they're paying out, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I definitely, I saw this and just thought it was so weird to be doing that carriage return replacement. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I, I can't think of a single scenario of why you'd want to do that, but yeah, it happened, so. We'll move on. We have three different articles from the same author about GitHub and GIST vulnerabilities. Uh, we'll start off with GIST. So uh, I will interrupt you. Just say thank you to Kubli for the sub. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, three months. Thank you. So this is an open redirect bug in GitHub GIST. Um, they, they dug into the Ruby on Rails code uh, and discovered, you know, query parameters in the URL were, were put into hash maps. Uh, and that's kind of where their discovery phase uh, starts off. When investigating the different values that could be set, they found one that exhibited interesting behavior on different pages they tried, which was the script name uh, parameter, which is used to prepend data to an application path. So you can see why this sounds like it would be interesting. In some areas, it led to XSS. In the OAuth mechanism, it led to open redirect. So the login authorized endpoint for well, OAuth uh, added the variable to um, be prepended to the redirect URL. 
Um, I kind of want to interrupt you there because um, it wasn't the OAuth that was vulnerable. They used OAuth as part of their exploit, but uh, we're... Well, the OAuth was the vector that was used to abuse it. Well, so so the issue itself, though, was just in an area. I'm not sure they actually show us which area or which uh, module actually uh, did the redirect, but there was just an area that took... Of parameters and yeah if the, uh sorry the source equals message page um if you had that it would redirect to and then use this url for uh method which we were or function which we were talking about earlier where it would just take all of the request query parameters turn that into a hash map toss that in as all the arguments for url for uh so you can control the arguments to what url it's going to try and generate um so what they did for the actual attack was abusing the oauth uh because it basically gives them an open redirect they could set up the url to redirect to any url rather than what's intended where it's intended just to be used for kind of local paths um they include this only path parameter which indicates that it won't include the domain uh so it's intended just to kind of take you around the website redirect you to another portion of the application uh, so coming back on how they actually abuse that, open redirect is often an ignored issue. A lot of companies just won't really pay out for it. They'll just accept that as a risk, you know, whatever. I mean, a lot of cases, all you're really doing, all you're really doing with it is redirecting somebody to a phishing page. Now, I do think it's an issue that can definitely be abused, but if that's all you're doing, I can understand where companies are coming from in just saying, it's not quite worth it to put a lot of effort into fixing that. So that's so finally coming back around to OAuth, uh, by using the open redirect to uh, set up a GitHub OAuth authorized request that had its redirect URL being the vulnerable page in GitHub gist, or well, in gist.github, I guess would be the better way to put it, uh, which is where this vulnerability existed. Uh, it would hit that redirect page and then they could redirect that request back over to their own page, which gives them access to the information being passed inside of the URL parameter. Or as a URL parameter at that point, which means they can then go ahead and manually hit the uh, log or hit the actual callback page with that information and have an authorized uh, OAuth session using the information they leaked using that open redirect. Uh, so that's where OAuth comes in. It's what they use to exploit the issue, but the issue isn't really in the OAuth implementation at all. Because uh, that's just how OAuth works and how the redirects work within it. Yeah, that's my bad. I didn't want to imply that the issue wasn't OAuth, just that they abused it through that, uh, like using it as a vector. But yeah, th- thanks for clarifying that because. Uh... Yeah, the way I worded it wasn't the best. Um, but it is worth noting that GIST and GitHub, I keep saying GIST in different ways. I'll, I'll say GIST, I'll try to keep it consistent. Uh, GIST and GitHub use uh, different tokens. So this doesn't grant access to the GitHub account. Um, that would be a, a lot more serious. Though, you know, just account takeover is pretty serious too. Uh, if someone uses secret GIST a lot and whatnot. Um, yeah, yeah, it was still cool an right issue. Up. Yeah. It was a cool write-up. Uh, there was a bit of confusion here, though, because they use the word hash uh, when it seems what they were referring to was hash map. 
Uh, at first, we both misinterpreted what they meant by that. I thought they meant the hash of the gist itself, like in the URL. Uh, Z thought they meant the URL fragments. Uh, but then you you figured out that it was meant it was meant for hash maps, uh, which makes a lot more sense when you you know put that puzzle piece together. Yeah, the um, description up here is just simply. I did come across a few places where they were calling URL four with a user controllable hash, which I once you read. Uh, the actual details of the issue, you can see this URL4 request kind of generates a hash map based on the request.query parameters. So it makes sense as soon as you remember that, you know, it's called a hash map versus like dictionary or other things. But yeah, my initial thought was like the fragment part of the URL was in play here. But then go get to the end of the issue. It's like, well, where did the fragment come into this? And yeah, a little bit of confusion there that I think if they just would have said, you know, hash map, it would have, you know, been immediately clear versus hash, which just can be interpreted in so many different ways. But the write-up itself is kind of clear about what's happening. It's just that intro that was a little bit misleading. So they ended up netting a $10,000 bounty uh, from GitHub for this issue. So... That's a pretty high paying issue, but they ended up getting paid even more for some of the follow up issues. So we'll move into uh, GitHub RCE. So unlike this, uh, unlike the last one, this issue is in GitHub. It's not in gist. Uh, this vector was found through branch names. So in the git sub commands, you can specify options, uh, one of them being the branch you want to operate on. Options are specified by using dashes. Um, usually user controlled data is put behind double dashes in uh, quotes that they can't be parsed as part of the command um, or they can't break out of it, I should say. The, the problem here is there's an area where the branch name is used without using that double dash. It just gets directly injected into the command. Uh, this was through the dip tree subcommand, which was used for performing a, re a revert on a branch. Uh, so by specifying a branch name that had dashes in it, uh, to specify an option using something like uh, double dash output, you could write the output of that diff to an arbitrary file. So since the content is fairly controllable, um, since you would have control over the repository if you could create that branch, you can overwrite scripts like setup scripts to run arbitrary code. Now in the headline, they have almost appended at the end. Uh, where that almost comes in is you do need a CSERF token to be able to perform this attack. Um, but it is still a serious issue, and GitHub agreed. Uh, they ended up paying out twenty thousand for this issue. Yeah, so. I think I think you kind of underplay the CSERF issue here a little bit. Uh, you need a CSERF token, and in particular, they could not generate a CSERF token that could be used for this attack, so they weren't able to get RCE using it. And that just comes down to how GitHub's actually doing. Um, how GitHub's actually going forward with generating these CSERF tokens. Basically, the entire form is validated. Um, I'm not sure if they're doing like an HMAC based on it or what, but they're validating the entire form and generating a token based on the entire form that you're submitting. And they do further checks than what this page actually does. Uh, so it doesn't allow you to use the like double dashes in the form uh, and create a CSERF token for it. It requires that they be the SHA hashes of the commits in order for it to generate a token for it. So it does completely block. It's not like you can just find the token somewhere. They actually go down the rabbit hole of trying to find a token they could use. Uh, but GitHub agrees, like it is an issue in the code. They just got lucky by the fact that the CSERF token prevents it. 
um like the issues there there's just that one mitigation that's just a story for why you need to have multiple layers of defense in place not just one it does really surprise me they paid out as much as they did considering that stipulation uh, i think uh github deserves some props for that i think that that was really cool on them too yeah uh, to i think 20, it's, so. i think it's fair because like the issue is there in the code they just like github even mentions they got lucky with the sea surf adding that extra protection just another example of how uh defense in depth you know can, can really cover you even if you do have issues still so our final github issue is in pages and uh it's it's an rce as well so the author was prompted by looking in the security fixes uh for github enterprise due to the previous issues they'd already reported and they noticed a fix for an issue in the cram down gem for Ruby for markdown rendering. Um, so it allows templates to be passed via the template option uh, through file path or the string used um, as template contents, which means you could abuse it to read arbitrary files you shouldn't be able to, like Etsy password or run arbitrary Ruby code. Um, and this prompted them, th them to think, okay, well, what other options can be abused? Um, through those uh, configuration files. So looking at Cramdown version 1.17, which was apparently the version GitHub Pages was using, they found another uh, option. This one was undocumented called input that could be used to specify, uh, that you could specify in the Jekyll uh, YAML config. So this allowed you to select the parser to parse the source code. And it does this by attempting to require in the module for that using snake case of the input name you provide. So there's a directory traversal there because you can require in any file outside of the path and it doesn't restrict using dots and slashes. It just requires a alphanumeric and it allows the dots and slashes. So if you can create a file that contains malicious Ruby code, you can use this directory traversal to get that code ran. The tricky part there is getting that file created locally to require it in on the GitHub pages. They found that when GitHub tried to build the Jekyll site, it would use a temporary directory to do that. Um, so that's that's what they ended up tunneling in on to try to abuse this issue. There is a challenge with that because it is a bit racy. That temporary directory does get wiped after it finishes processing. Uh, how they got around that was they, they used large files and they do it over and over again to try to expand that uh, that window. So that was the first RCE. There was a second one uh, that was due to a different option in the syntax highlighter component. And this one, you could pass a form formatter class for the syntax highlighter. And while they have a validator that allows only alphanumeric characters, they use const get, which can be used to get any constant or class defined. It's not just limited to the constants and classes specific to formatting. So this is kind of like a, a deserialization attack in a way. You can get a top-level Ruby object created, and you could somewhat control the initialization via the hash pass to it. Uh, after some brute forcing and iteration, uh, they found the Husco class. It's a little bit weird. I don't know how you, you're supposed to pronounce that. Um, but it's basically used for jailing Docker containers, uh, jailing using Docker containers. Uh, ironically, here it was used to break integrity rather than enforce it. Um, they could essentially require an inmate object uh, or file using an option passed to it, which, again, had a similar issue to the first issue. It was a directory traversal. You could set an arbitrary inmate directory and require in code that you control. So in terms of timeline, both of these issues were reported on August 20th. 
Uh, both were fixed on August 27th. This one netted 25k total. Uh, they got a 20k uh, base bounty plus a 5k bonus. I don't think they mentioned what the uh, what the bonus was for, but overall, very nice. Uh, in total, over these three sets of issues, they pulled in 55,000. So that's not bad at all. Um, GitHub really, really ended up paying these researchers quite a bit for for all these issues combined. Yeah, it's a good set of issues too. Like, I, we were kind of debating whether or not we wanted to cover three issues from the same author in the same week. And I mean, in this case, like, I think all three of these, you know, had something interesting of them that is worth noting and was worth looking at. Except for that issue with the hash versus hash map. Generally, like, no real issues understanding any of them. Like, just good write-ups all around. Yeah, I, I like the that they included that discovery phase as well. We always like to shout that out in write-ups. Sometimes they just jump right to the issue, which, you know, clear and concise is good as well. But that discovery phase can offer some useful insights, especially if you're researching a project that uh, is not generally, there's not a lot of resources out about. Uh, I haven't really seen much around GitHub or GitHub infrastructure, so that, that was cool to get those insights yeah, from the discovery think... phases. I think a lot of what we've covered in the past so far has, uh, when it's GIF Relay, has been GitLab. I know we've covered a few GitLab issues in the past. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to be able to visit that other side of the coin with, uh, with that in GitHub. Yeah, hit on, or hit on Microsoft a little bit. Yeah. We love hitting on Microsoft. Um, so, we have more privilege escalations in enterprise-level uh, VPNs. Citrix Gateway Plugin. So the gateway here tries to execute a PowerShell script every five minutes. So in order to do that, it obviously has to invoke PowerShell to do that. And it does, and it invokes PowerShell as system. Problem is here, and this is something we've covered before, they don't use the full path to do that. They just issue PowerShell.exe. Yeah, it feels so like when... it's been a little while since we've covered this issue. But yeah, we've, we've covered this sort of thing quite a few times, especially once we get to the RPC stuff. Yeah. So for those who don't know Windows, uh, basically what happens when you specify uh, an executable and you don't specify an absolute path, it relies on a deterministic search order to find the executable that you want to run. So it first looks in the same directory as the application. If it can't find it there, it looks in the directory of the parent process. Uh, then it goes to the Win32 directory, then the 16-bit system directory, then the Windows directory. And then the directory is listed in the path variable in the order that they're listed in that variable. Uh, so in this case, it ended up falling through all the way to the path variable. <clears throat> and the problem there is what happens if someone adds something that leads to a PowerShell executable earlier in the path than the legitimate one? Well, what happens is you can hijack the executable there. Um, the, the second issue is it writes a log file to program data with system privileges. So and... just before we carry on, sorry, I do want to talk about when it comes to dropping the path in this case, they use the example of Python. If you were to um, install Python first, then you kind of get, you're able to add the, um, sorry, so Python has a very permissive directory. Um, it'll usually install like by default to like C and then like Python 2.7 or 2.8 or whatever in 3.8, like whatever you've got, whatever Python you've got, it'll just install and see, and it'll be a very permissive directory where you can just go ahead and drop in any binary. That's the example they use, and that does, 
it feels a little bit weird to even go that route, but it is worth at least pointing out like Python's kind of common. I don't know, it just it felt like a weird thing to use for their privilege escalation to just depend on that in particular. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um I, I did notice they they pointed out the, the Python strategy. Um I was just thinking you would just edit the path variable, but well that uh, kind of just becomes Yeah, like you can just edit the user path variable. That's kind of just a user self attack then. At least in this case, it's attacking some that is kind of system wide. Yeah, so but you would still have to search that path variable for, um, you know, a directory that you could use. Because for example, like they use Python here, but not their their victim might not have Python installed. So you would have to kind of iterate through that and find uh, find a viable directory to pull find that or off hope of. you find a viable one that's sitting in the system wide path environment. And actually, I guess since that is executing as a service, I'm not sure your user path is even going to be looked at since it's running a system. Oh, fair point. Yeah, good, good mention. I, I didn't even think about that. Um, so I will get into the second issue. Uh, the second issue was very similar to another issue they wrote up, which uh, we decided not to cover. Um, but they also looked at a hotspot VPN. And this issue is they write a log file to program data with system privileges. And that directory has full control, access control lists. Um, and this is just a classic James Forshaw style attack, using a junction so that you can make it right anywhere. Um, uh, the final issue is, they, they, they do have three issues. The final issue is the same issue, uh, just in different logs that are written to the app data directory instead. So they ended up getting two CVEs assigned here. I'm guessing the last two, uh, since they were both with the logging stuff, they were probably grouped together. And then uh, along with that uh, that PowerShell issue with the non-absolute path. Um, it's hard to confirm, though, because the CVE descriptions, I went to look for them really quick to see if they did group together the two logging ones. Uh, the CVE descriptions were just marked as reserved. So no, couldn't really not. go off of anything there. Yeah, not something you could draw from. Yeah. So... When it comes to calling this elevation of privilege, you could use this, since it basically allows you to write a file anywhere. In theory, you could use this, you know, write a DLL into System32 or some that's almost certainly going to be loaded. But they don't really cover how they get a kind of arbitrary content being written. Because this is writing a log file. Uh, they don't really cover that. They do cover in one case um, uh, one of the files, like the backup, uh, when they have a backup directory, it'll copy the file in. That's where they're able to get uh, the arbitrary file overwrite is by targeting that copy. But I don't believe they control the contents of that log completely. Um, am I mistaken about that? So I was thinking the exact same thing. And... Um... I was also thinking about this with the other one that I read with the the other VPN. Yeah, okay, you can write these log contents to any file you want. So you get an arbitrary file corruption primitive. That's what I would call it as. But it, I don't see any way how you can control all the contents. Even if you could inject into the log, you're not going to control the entire log. So that kind of eliminates the ability of being able to write a DLL, like you were saying earlier. I don't see how, like, a log file could be used to get, like, a, 
as powerful as an issue as what you were saying with being able to write DLLs or executables or anything like that, I would call this an arbitrary file corruption instead of an arbitrary file write. Because arbitrary file write to me implies that you have control over both where what gets written and where it gets written. Here you only have the where, you don't have the what. So that's I wish there was kind of a different terminology used for that. I wish arbitrary file corruption was a more common term. Um, yeah, like but maybe it's are... just too specific i don't know if you are breaking this down into like stride types like it is an elevation privilege because you are writing something somewhere that you wouldn't otherwise be able to write to like that it does make sense it's just i wish they would have gone more into like the practical use of this beyond just like a denial of service uh, which it's is essentially kind of what you're getting by corrupting files it's another one of those cases where the stride types don't tell the whole story you, you kind of have to look into the bug a little bit more to see the nuances of it yeah so remote code execution staying on that train we have symphony based websites so this was a post from ambionic security which talks about the symphony framework and issues that are present in sites that use it uh, this framework has a component that's used for generating sub requests called a fragment listener <clears throat> now this component is not enabled by default but when it is, it takes requests via an endpoint that they specify, which is underscore fragment, um, <clears throat> and you can pass a path to it to pass uh, request attributes in. One of these attributes you can specify is a controller, which is what Symfony controller to use, whether it be a function, class, whatever, um, which means you can use that endpoint to call any function or method of any class you want with full control over the parameters. So it's an extremely powerful component um, and it's easy to get code execution using it by invoking something like system, if that's possible. Um, they do mention that's not always possible, or just using some other object to get code execution. Um, now, this endpoint isn't just sitting unprotected in the open, fortunately. Uh, so while this component is powerful, since Symphony 4, it's disabled by default, as I mentioned, and when it's enabled, it's protected by an HMAC secret. Uh, but where the bug comes into play is they go into why these protections aren't necessarily adequate. Um, when it comes to it being disabled, they state many websites and frameworks uh, rely on edge side includes, and thus they need that class to be available. Um, and then when it comes to the secrets, those secrets are not uh, protected as well as they should be. Um, for one thing, they could be extracted using other vulnerabilities, or sometimes the secret is just really poorly generated, or it's even just a static value. Um, yeah, they actually, they talk about when it comes to the static value that formerly the application did just deploy with the value being this token is not so secret, change it. Now by default, it does uh, apparently securely generate it. Uh, but they do talk about two platforms that use um, Symfony, namely X platform or EX platform and Bolt. Uh, EX platform apparently does use just a default uh, so like the latest version just uses a default key for it. Um, the older version still did. The one I found somewhat interesting though was with Bolt CMS. The latest version uses the MD5 of the directory of the file that's executing. Which is an interesting protective measure and it probably would have been decent, you know, 10 years ago. Something like that where before Docker was really popular. Now that Docker's popular, you're going to have a lot of websites that end up, I mean, even before that, you'd still have websites using kind of like similar directories, like 
tossing stuff in var ww and things like that like kind of guessable directories uh but now with stuff like docker it's just even worse to rely upon directory as being part of the secret uh, because so many things will just deploy it in exactly the same place because that's where the normal Docker kind of goes. It, it's kind of become a dated and unviable source of uh, source of secrecy, I guess. So I yeah, mean, it, it was never really a good. Easy. It was never a good source for any secret, but it was at least a little bit more viable when the deployments were usually just kind of being custom done. Outside of the default values, they do mention some examples of bugs that you can chain with to get the secret, even if the secret is generated properly. Uh, they mention arbitrary file read. You know, if you can get an arb file read, you can just pull the secret from the YAML configuration. It's also exposed in PHP info, if that's exposed, which, by the way, PSA, don't, don't expose PHP info. <laughs> Not a good idea. Which is, weirdly, it's exposed reasonably frequently it's one of those like almost test pages because it's a single function call you toss in a file you upload as like info.php and you can just test and make sure things are working and then you forget to delete it no like it it's weirdly frequently exposed yeah i think people just don't realize the the kind of how impactful that information can be to a malicious party um but the final strategy they propose is brute forcing the secret um, and that's because they use it for multiple purposes. They also use it for generating CSERF tokens, I believe. So they mentioned just brute forcing it using the uh, the multiple use cases for it. The article goes into more of the minutiae of some of the challenges uh, they face while attempting this, like the fact that sometimes that controller parameter can't be a function and some of the other challenges. We won't go into that here, but if you find that interesting and think it may be useful to you know whatever you're doing, you can definitely check out the article. Um, getting into thoughts about this, this is an example of one of those things where, okay, you can provide a powerful capability and lock it behind an HMAC secret. That doesn't mean that you're safe. Um, it's very easy to have holes in a system like that due to misconfiguration or like they mentioned, chaining with other bugs. So ideally, if you can, you just, you don't want to have this kind of capability exposed at all. Um, even if you do protect it, it's it's not like a a guarantee nothing is going to get past it wall um and that that's kind of this that's kind of what this article showcases there so i get the feeling like a better approach for this would have been implementing some sort of easily configurable whitelist as to the appropriate controllers uh something like that i think would have provided a much better degree of security yeah i think that's reasonable that, that would have been a reasonable uh, solution as well. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like Symfony is just a framework. Applications are, you know, they're just building off it. But the fact that this fragment exists, that just kind of does this universal thing. Like, I think off, like, just adding in something to specify a whitelist, even if it's a fuzzy whitelist, would be better than just leaving it completely open. And before anybody suggests that, a blacklist would not be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Whitelist or nothing at all, I guess. Because uh, yeah, yeah, at least in this case, um, and I mean, there probably are some cases where whitelisting just wouldn't be viable. Far too many controllers to use something like that, uh, or it's just too dynamic. 
but at least having that option there and encouraging that as the default i think would have been better than just trying like the hmac is a fine thing to kind of like sign the request so it's not just so an attacker can't just uh tamper with it like that's fair i just think there really should be more uh one of the other things that they do talk about is kind of brute forcing the token because in one case like the tokens being generated based on the uh unique id function call um so it does a mt rand um i'm trying to find it on the page here mt rand with a unique id and um in sense.io i guess is using this unique id i it's not a security token like do not use that as like a source of randomness because unique id basically it'll generate it's a um I might be it might not fall exactly the spec but it's very similar to a case to it which is a case sortable unique globally unique id and the problem with that is the way they get a lot of their guarantees that it's globally unique is by encoding the timestamp into it which means while it is unique because only so many things are going to call um for the unique id during that same like millisecond of time um, and then they have a random value add on there. So like they could have like 90,000 possibilities in addition to that unique ID. And there's some other, like hardware ID can be included there. There's some other piece of information, but it's not random. It, it is somewhat deterministic. There's just a small bit of randomness in there. So that can be brute forced. Um, and getting the timestamp, I like to call back face or like the old... I don't remember when it was, but Facebook session IDs were broken at one point just because you'd watch when the server would end up rebooting and then you knew the timestamp based on the time that it came back up. It's like, hey, that's the time that the RAND was seated uh, for that's the session token identification. Um, so you can kind of do something, in this case, not quite similar, but you can still figure out some of the times being used th when, when things are generated. So... I mean, you can brute force these things is basically what I'm getting at. Um, and they talk about that brute forcing certain bits and different ways that things are being generated. And I like this post. So like, it's, it's a survey of issues. It's not just here's a vulnerability in Symphony. It's just here's a survey of how, if you get to this point, where do you go next? What are you looking for next? And I think they cover it pretty well. Yeah, I'd agree. So revisiting some virtualization today, we have VMware workstation vulner vulnerabilities and a write-up by ZDI. Two time of check, time of use, race conditions. So they start off by talking a bit about the legacy BIOS emulation, which is done by using a modified Phoenix BIOS. And one of the modifications that they uh, make on that BIOS is a backdoor channel. It's, it's more like a communication channel. They officially call it a backdoor or B-door, so that's why they use it in this write-up for accuracy, but it's not like a malicious backdoor or anything, which uh, they, they point out in the article. But basically, you can send messages or commands over this channel. Uh, it's, it's like a command buffer between the guest and the host or hypervisor, which implements these commands. Uh, one of the commands is the B-door CMD patch ACPI tables. So this parses the advanced configuration and power interface tables from the guest memory. Um, both issues are related to the, the ACPI table header, which has metadata like the table signature, the length, the checksum, and some other uh, miscellaneous values in there. The two most important ones there, though, are the length and the checksum. 
Those are what they focus on for both of these issues. The first issue is the table's length is read from the guest, and then it's mapped into host memory with that size. But then after validating the table, they read the table length again from the guest memory via the mapping. So there's a double fetch going on there. Uh, this table size can change between the two fetches, which leads to a constrained out-of-bounds write primitive. The second issue is extremely similar to the first one, just in a slightly different area. Um, this one is when the S1 sleeping state object is patched. Um, when this happens, the checksum in the header needs to be updated to reflect the changes. And when they go to do that, uh, they calculate the new checksum. Uh, and then when they do that, they retrieve the table length again. So there's another double fetch that reads to out-of-bounds read, which can be used to uh, get an info leak. What I thought was cool here was both of these issues kind of uh, tie together. They can be chained together potentially for a VM escape. Although there is some stipulations, especially around the constrained out-of-bounds write, where they think it might not be viable for uh, for that. It might only be useful for DOS. Um, so on but, that, um, it basically just goes through and replaces underscore S1 with foo. Is that right? Like, was I understanding that correctly? Is that kind of what you understood too? Or does it replace it with another value? Like, is there any control over the value that's replacing um, the underscore S1 with when it does that patch? I'm not totally sure. I, I was a bit confused on that part myself. I wasn't really sure what they were trying to go for there. Yeah, like it just seems like, okay, so it patches that. You can perhaps get it, you know, patching in the wrong place. But it seems like it would be a really hard thing to actually exploit that. And they do comment that it is a very constrained out of bounds, right? So that makes me think like it really is. You need to plant that underscore S1 and they'll replace it with foo and that's it uh like that is very constrained i don't see how you're going to ex get an exploit with that apart from some very contrived situations yeah I, as much as it would be cool in theory to chain these both together for a vm escape in practice i don't think it'll it'll work out yeah the uh, info leak said, though is absolutely usable though exactly. i will say that that so the checksum, in case anybody's wondering, it's a really simple thing. It just goes through. It's a one-byte checksum. Basically sums up all the bytes mod 255. Uh, so basically you just get a one-byte value. just keeps iterating over that same 0 to 255 loop until the end. That's how it does the checksum. So if you keep expanding the length by one, you can figure out what the next byte is. And then you can do it again to figure out what the next byte is and leave one byte at a time as far as you want. Yeah, which, like you said, that's very useful. That could be extrapolated out of this and chained with another bug for VM escape. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's not a zero day anymore. It's been patched, but um, it could could be a fun exercise to uh, to take this bug and, and leverage it somewhere else. Um, so because of the out-of-bounds write being so constrained, they go through their proof-of-concept section and talk about how they exploited the info leak, but not how they... Uh, they didn't really go into any details about the constrained out-of-bounds right, uh, presumably because they just thought it was a dead end. Um, the, the way they fixed this issue uh, on the VMware side was they just removed that legacy backdoor uh, call to be able to disable the S1 sleep state. Again, one of those fixes where it's not a clean fix, but it's just a complete removal of the feature that led to the issue, um, which is fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, it's legacy code there for some backwards compatibility, so... You know update already <laughs> uh they do actually even mention that this it would check to make sure that your vmware 
like the workstation tools or whatever being used at this point was uh less than 6.00 i believe uh so it's not like even the latest tools being installed would have had access to this if it's reported depending on the version it's reporting so i think removing it is a fair move i will say i do wish um we did get to see the fixes just because it's always fun to see the fixes for these talk to type issues because they can be difficult code patterns to deal with. So and we can I think... patch diff. <laughs> we, yeah. Um, but I mean, like those fixes can be really informative just because there are certain code patterns where it can sometimes take weeks or, or longer to figure out how to rework code to prevent these types of issues just because of the way that the system was initially designed. Um, but I imagine, you know, that's the precise reason why um, they just remove the functionality entirely because it's very easy to mess up those types of fixes. So, you know, just just a personal wish, but uh, overall a good write-up. And I, that first bug especially sounds like it could be really useful for chaining with other stuff. And VM escapes are always fun to talk about. Yeah. So we have a really short one uh, coming up. This one is an on... An authenticated remote buffer overflow in the Belkin Linksys uh, WRT160NL network switches. It was a bit of a mouthful. Um, it was in their mini HTTP daemon. Um, basically, a really straightforward issue. Uh, they take data passed over an HTTP post request for creating a directory uh, on the create direction, and they use sprintf to uh, build up the data. Basically, just a bad function usage. What they should have used here was snprintf. Um, you should always use that with untrusted data because sprintf doesn't constrain the size, uh, or at least it doesn't the way they used it because they just use a percent %s uh, format specifier. snprintf, you can specify a maximum size, uh, which is what they should have here, did here, but they didn't. Uh, and because of that, there's a trivial stack overflow. They don't mention it here, but I imagine this binary probably isn't compiled with stack cookies, so this could probably be leveraged for code execution pretty easily. Just you know, standard stack smash, uh, return pointer hijack. Um, though, because they use uh, sprintf here with a string formatter, null bytes are out of the question, which could be problematic for that. Um, but without more details, it's, it's hard to really know. I'm basically just speculating uh, at that point. In terms of timeline, um, it was reported September 23rd. Uh, there was a response October 5th that the device is no longer supported. Uh, the, this uh, switch was released in 2009, so this is basically one of those stories that ends and won't fix. <laughs> so yeah, pretty much, uh, it does seem like it's a reason. If it's on 09, we're probably not dealing with a lot of the mitigations in place either. So even with the no byte issue, I feel like there's a good it's chance. It's probably 32 bit. Yeah, I was just gonna say 32 bits. So probably not. I mean, there's a chance there's some things that are going to have no bytes, of course, but. Odds are most addresses aren't. You might you'll. I feel like this is probably exploitable. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, so kind of a short topic. I did want to springboard a bit of a discussion off of it. Uh, maybe not with this uh switch specifically, since two thousand nine is pretty old. But do you think with certain devices like routers, networking equipment, um modems, stuff like that, do you think they should have a mandatory support window like government enforced? 
The reason I ask is routers and switches aren't things that people or companies really seem to switch out often. And it seems like a lot of vendors take the lazy way out and just stop supporting uh, these types of devices within like a few years, which doesn't seem reasonable to me. And it's also important equipment that everyone needs to be able to, you know, uh, perform their tasks. So do you think that there should be like a mandatory support date for modems and switches and stuff? I that kind of comes into a question of big government versus small government. Should the government even be doing any enforcement at that level? Which isn't really a discussion I'm prepared to dive right into. My initial response though would be that it feels like having the government get involved at that sort of regulation is just asking for problems because the government moves so slowly anyhow. Uh, I do think, like, I agree in principle that there needs to be more support for them because they do retire these devices long before users actually retire them. Yeah, that's where I was kind of playing devil's advocate. Like, I'd agree. I'm generally not a fan of government uh, coming in, uh, especially with, like, tech and stuff. But it is a, a question that I've seen raised in many places is the fact that this is one area where devices are typically used long past the support date. And I don't know how you really solve that problem without government stepping in. So that's why I was thinking that that might be a, a more realistic avenue of fixing the issue. But honestly, like it just seems like one of those issues that unfortunately doesn't have a, a good solution. Yeah, I mean, you could make the capitalist claim, um, you know, let the market decide. I do think the market has decided against security, though, just because people don't generally get a lot of choice on their router, too. Oftentimes, it's Especially coming from their ISP. Uh, you know, people are... Well, I mean, you can go buy your own router, but your modem still isn't... or is often coming from the ISP. It, it varies from place to place. You can... Some place will let you provide your own modem, but... I don't know. It, it's a problem. I just don't think people care enough about it for anything to change until like there's a real a real risk to the average user so even something like this it seems easily exploitable but this isn't exposed on the internet it's somebody that is on your local network which like we said before is a pretty big requirement yeah I yeah, think until just... we have like so, uh, several major vulnerabilities that are internet connected, I am less sure that we're really going to see this. And even uh, what was the ransomware that spread on IoT devices? That didn't really change very much. I, the name escapes me right now. Was, was that Mira? I can't remember. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like that you would think would kind of awaken people a little bit to it. It didn't. So I. I don't know what's really going to change to have router security get any better. Uh, just take the appropriate steps for yourself when you're aware of it. That doesn't help the masses, but you can at least watch out for yourself. Yeah, I will quickly add on there. That is unfortunate with some countries as well. Uh, in Canada, for example, I think at least uh, like every province in Canada, you can't provide a modem unless you want to go against the terms of service of the I the ISP because you would have to basically root the modem and pull the certs to use your own modem. And at that point, um, the ISPs don't really like you doing that. And in Canada, ISPs have quite a bit of power, a lot more power than I would otherwise like. 
So it is kind of dependent also on the country you live in and stuff, which is also unfortunate. But again, an issue we can't really do anything about. So unfortunate. So our last exploit is one that's been exploited in the wild in Chromium. It was reported by Sergei Blazunov in, uh, from Project Zero. It's a free type bug via integer truncation in the load SPIT PNG function, which I believe is used to load PNGs as glyphs in free type from font files, which I haven't really done before myself, but I, I imagine there's probably some use for that out there. So when invoking the function, uh, for those not familiar with the free tape, the free type API, for a lot of those functions, you give it an image width and height for the container as 32-bit uh, integers, which is eventually used to calculate the total size of the bitmap. The problem is the function internally truncates the values to 16 bits from 32 bits. So the backing buffer is allocated using that truncated value. But in the image structure, the 32-bit values are kept. So there's an overflow there because of the discrepancy, right? The buffer can't be large enough to contain all of the PNG data if you allow uh, width and height as 32-bit integers, um, but only allocate it with 16-bit integers. Well, so, so the other issue is when it returns, it gives that structure that only contains the larger 32-bit size. So when it gives that structure back, then libpng is like, okay, I've got this 32-bit size to deal with rather than the 16-bit size. Yeah. So pretty straightforward issue, uh, just basically an, an integer discrepancy uh, into overflow. Uh, what I found funny was there seems to be a bit of shade thrown by the uh, free type maintainer uh, that was assigned to this bug. Uh, there was a quote there. Uh, let me just find it really quick. Uh, I think it was the comment number two. Too bad the fuzzer ran by Chrome. the Chrome people didn't catch that in the last few years. <laughs> you can definitely hear the undertone in that. Um, saying that I, I guess they, they're not happy about for some reason about the team that's doing the fuzzing on the free type stuff. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was kind of funny. Well, I mean, fuzzing creates a lot of work to do, and some of the bugs may or may not actually be exploitable or easily exploitable. That's, I do find it interesting. This is a parser error that's, ex uh, like been seen in the wild. So somebody managed to exploit this. Um, against Chrome, which is kind of an interesting case because, I mean, parser bugs are somewhat difficult to exploit. Uh, so have have we had any details about their exploit strategy? I didn't see any, um, but I, I was kind of thinking along the same lines. This seems like an issue uh, that wouldn't be able to be exploited in most scenarios except for something as powerful as a browser like chromium where you can just pass it arbitrary font files and get them parsed in many scenarios this this bug probably wouldn't even be reachable even if your project was using free type um along with exploiting the parser bug specifically yeah it's weird because aslr and stuff like that prevents a or presents a massive challenge when you're exploiting parser bugs um, my only guess is because you're hitting it through the browser, maybe there's some primitives that you can leverage using this bug that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So you're getting yeah, heap given... corruption in the browser, and if you can corrupt like a JS object or something, I could I could definitely see how that could provide more powerful primitives you could then springboard off of to uh, to get uh, code execution. 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of get the feeling like perhaps you can exploit this, you know, multiple times and get a bit of a read going with it might be usable. And then you can kind of leverage that into further writes. Because I mean, libpng has got to be doing a fair bit of processing over this. Or not necessarily processing, but like you've probably got some fair gadgets coming out of libpng after this bug is hit that you might be able to get multiple things like a read and a write gadget out of it. Um, if yeah. you can hit it multiple times without actually causing a crash. So, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I do find it interesting that the the Chrome fuzzing didn't find this issue, because this seems like a prime type of bug for a fuzzer to catch. Um, like, any like large integer or whatever passed in here should have been able to trigger this issue. Uh, I guess sometimes, like, with, with fuzzing, there is a, a luck factor... You know, you could have the best fuzzer in the world and still not find an issue that you would maybe easily find in code review just because your fuzzer just didn't happen to hit that area of code or whatever. Um, but it does kind of surprise me a little bit there that the fuzzer didn't find the issue. It's a little bit surprising. It really depends, though, on how libpng is actually using this once it lands. You know, how frequent is the crash actually going to happen? Versus it just grabbing memory and kind of having a very weird looking image. Like an image that just doesn't look right. Like if it's able to just deal with the bitmap data that's there. Uh, the fuzzer wouldn't necessarily notice that as a crash. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th th that was pretty funny with a bit of shade there. Um, but yeah. And issues that are exploited in the wild are always uh, worth talking about because that that demonstrates, you know, sometimes we have to speculate with bugs if they're exploitable. In this case, we know it was because it was being exploited. So, yeah. yeah. Um, just, just goes to of, show where fuzzing could be useful, too. Yeah, just out of chat, Serial Wallace asks, I'm curious how you feel about vulnerabilities with Flash and why its support is being discontinued. It's the same deal with, like, Java applets. There used to be, like, um, is there a Java O-Day now or, like, is... I forget what the website was, but it was something like that.com, which just it had a countdown of how many days it's been since Java had a vulnerability to, and, and then they introduced the signing, which restricted a lot of the a lot of the acts you get through Java. Same deal with Flash. It was just used for a lot of vulnerabilities because it's a huge attack surface. Same deal with PDFs. Huge attack surface in PDFs. So, I mean, it's far as being discontinued, one, because we don't really need it as much anymore with Canvas objects, with HTML5 and all of that coming in there. We have other options, WebAssembly. There's other options that have been designed at least with some security in mind now, rather than Flash, which just kind of had security hacked onto it. So, we'll get into some research. As a gopher, I'm happy our research topic today is Go-related. So this is about finding unsafe Go code in the wild. So one of the big benefits that you get with languages like Golang is the fact that you get memory safety. So I'm not going to go Rustation and say that this prevents any and all vulnerabilities and every application written in Golang is perfect and uh, is not exploitable, but it does go a long way. And part of what facilitates that memory safety is the fact that you can't just use raw memory pointers. Everything is managed for you by the Go runtime. Um, but if you if you really want to, for whatever reason, you can get more direct access to memory via unsafe uh, escape hatches, as they call them. 
Um, and we've talked about this before in the context of Rust. Uh, the reason you'd want to do this is if you're doing anything low level, like let's say you're developing an operating system or something like that, um, you would want that more direct memory access or something where you really care about the efficiency and you don't want to deal with the overhead of the managed uh, types. Um, but as the name implies, unsafe introduces potentially unsafe code into your application. And this paper looks at some popular software that uses unsafe code blocks in Go. Um, and they actually developed two tools for uh, devs and security researchers to use. So they start off by introducing uh, Go's unsafe package, uh, which offers a variety of primitives for operating with memory. Um, some of the keywords you typically see in C, like size of, align of, offset of, um, and pointer types, and talking about how dangerous it is to misuse those. So some of the misuse cases they give are like casting them to a higher level type, um, which mainly comes down to the differences between reference and non-reference types. Uh, non-reference types are hidden from escape analysis for garbage collection, which is a problem because uh, it means garbage the garbage collector could end up destroying something that you're using, uh, otherwise known as a use after free. Um, some of the other issues they mentioned you can encounter are racing with the garbage collector, um, bypassing compile time checks for read-only data, like immutable strings. Um, using the unsafe package, you could potentially try to access and change immutable strings, which the compiler would normally block, but because of the unsafe package, it allows it and uh, the program ends up crashing at runtime when you go to do that. Um, getting into the tools, their first tool is called Go Geiger. It's a tool that searches, uh, it scans for and identifies usages of unsafe in Go projects. Um, and it even attempts to assess the potential impact of the usage by studying the context where it's used. So whether it's a call to a function or a function parameter declaration, a variable de declaration, that sort of thing. Um, the second tool is Go Safer, which also scans for usages of unsafe, but instead of quantifying them and listing them, it goes further by giving advice on some of the patterns used and how they could be improved. Um, something useful out of this paper is the insights they gathered while they were doing the research. One thing that really jumped out at me was they mentioned that 48% of projects they looked at contained unsafe usage directly. Um, and 91% of projects import a dependency that relies on using unsafe. Um, now that second part isn't as surprising as the first one. Certain packages, uh, internal ones, probably have to use unsafe in certain scenarios. Um, but that 48% number really jumped out at me. Because um, I've written quite a few projects in Golang by now, even some decently low level ones. And I've never had to use unsafe directly. Um, I don't know if you have C in any of no, the projects I'm, you've written. I'm in the same camp. I haven't really used unsafe. I think once more on a performance issue, actually. Um, I've used, I have used a couple unsafe things that shouldn't be unsafe. Like I've used the reflect stuff a little bit, but that was uh, to do a type check, like a generic type checking. It wasn't like keeping a reference or doing anything that uh, would cause a problem. Okay. So, yeah, I didn't think unsafe was as much of an issue in Go as it is in Rust, mainly because Rust tries to push that system uh, low-level angle a lot more, where Go is more targeted for, like, networking and stuff like that, uh, like, stuff running at that level. Um, that typically doesn't need those lower-level memory primitives. It is worth mentioning, though, they point out there could be a bias with their numbers because they focused on the bigger projects. 
and bigger projects are more likely to include complex code, which might want to do that level of micro optimization of bypassing the overhead uh, of some of the managed types. So it, it's it's cool they point out here that there could be a bit of a bias there, but even still, even if there is, the number is a lot higher than I thought for sure. Yeah, I I agree with you that uh, the actual insights at the end here, like all of their stats they were pulled, I think is the most interesting part of this paper, just how common that unsafe usage is. It's definitely kind of attacking a little bit that assumption that Go code is just generally safe. It's definitely safer than C. I'm not going to argue there, but there are still likely vulnerabilities in Go code. Um, and in their benefit, you do have that unsafe flag that you can look for and find where these potential unsafe areas are, uh, which is, you know, something you don't get with C, where everything can be unsafe. Yeah. So we're going to move into our second news segment. I believe Antti uh, is around and he will be able to jump on. Am I right on that, C? Yes. Just want to double check? Okay, cool. So uh, we'll just get Antti on for our last few topics because um, for those who haven't seen Antti in a little while, because it's been a while since he's been on the podcast, uh, he does more of the um, threat intel. He gives more of the threat intel ang angle on things. And a few of our last news topic do uh, will probably benefit from that angle. So we're just going to get him to jump in really quick. Um, while we do, I think we can introduce the topics briefly. So some of you may have seen this. The NSA put out a statement about Chinese state-sponsored malicious cyber actors and uh, 25 CVEs they exploited. So, Antti, I think I just heard you join in. Welcome. Hey, guys. How's it going? I heard we were talking about the NSA, so I want to make sure I got myself on the watch list as well. <laughs> Long time, yeah, see. Good goals. Yeah, no, it's good to be on. Hopefully I have something to, to contribute. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the NSA put out and then removed a list of 25 CDEs that are being exploited by Chinese state-sponsored malicious cyber actors. Yeah, it is back up now also. Um, oh, for okay. some reason it wasn't loading, but now it seems like it is. I don't know if the article number changed or something. Uh, but essentially we've got NSA warning about 25 particular CVs coming out which I thought was just a little bit interesting. There's a PDF containing them. Uh, there was... It was interesting to see the types of things being targeted, uh, like Pulse Secure VPN, F5 Big IP, uh, Citrix, I believe Symantec was in here too, Remote Desktop Service on Windows. Like Some of the vulnerabilities are things we've even covered on here, uh, like the recent zero login one is mentioned. In particular, there was Adobe Cold Fusion, a CV from 2015 that the NSA is saying that Chinese state-sponsored actors are actively using. I thought that was interesting that, you know, a 2015 CV is actively being used in Oracle WebLogic. I almost bet you there's something built in like Cold Fusion that everyone's been using for like 10 years and won't give up. And it's just like one specific thing that's like, all right, we need to keep using this same CVE over and over, you know? I mean, Cold Fusion like felt old when I was a teenager. <laughs> it felt like it was dying then and yet it's still around and still kind of, you know, kicking. It just refuses to die. You know, yeah, I think it's definitely one of those things that I remember, shoot, seven, eight years ago was the last time I saw anything in Cold Fusion. So it's actually kind of sad that that's still being exploited 
in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but there was a whole big laundry list of uh, CVEs, which I was kind of impressed about. Um, you know, did you get a chance to look at the entire massive list of them? Yeah, I've I've got it up on stream here. Also, unfortunately, I can't have this uh, shared through our normal means. Um, I do want to correct myself though, quickly. Uh, I'm sorry, the 2015 CVE was in Oracle Web Logic. Uh, but that's not Cold Fusion. I was kind of glancing at this report and knows the 2015. Uh, this Cold Fusion one's from 2018, so that's uh, my bad there. It was an insecure deserialization, which is an issue we have talked about many times. I'm going to let my inner cause... Zoomer come out here. Um, what is uh, Adobe Cold Fusion? <laughs> I think that predates my time a little bit. Uh, I don't <laughs> know anything about it, so I, I did want to just... Cold Fusion is. is like a other sort of web markup language for like web apps. Let me see if I could pull something up about it. I, I think the big thing was, if I remember years ago, was Adobe had some type of like web application development shit that you could use that would automatically generate this Cold Fusion garbage. And <laughs> basically, you didn't have to know how to code. You could just make, you know, the prettiness in your little browser and it would then generate all this code that was similar. I don't know if I really want to call it a backend language, but it, it is kind of that it's a full scripting language to my knowledge. But well, yeah, it, it looks a lot like um, uh, kind of like HTML. It has similar like that XML style tags and stuff. But yeah, it is a lot more powerful for what it can do. I've never actually used it, so I don't know what the UI was. I'm just more familiar with the Cold Fusion markup language uh, for kind of building applications. I pulled up the Wikipedia here on stream a little bit. But it it's had its use. It's just, it's never been like the popular thing, but it has been used. Yeah, I believe, and I think Adobe dropped support for it like a few years back, technically. I could be wrong, so that's the other thing, like, they're probably not getting any like security updates as well uh, yeah. for the most part. Looks like the last stable release was 2018. And first release was 1995. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's been around for a while, but it's also just basically an abandoned language that keeps getting used. But I'm surprised that it's been that useful that the uh, DoD had to report that they're still using it. Yeah, that, that's the thing with this whole list. Like this is, you know, likely... They're seeing active campaigns using this. Uh, so, like, I'm not surprised by, like, the uh, that ECC issue in the crypto API with the, um, if you use the null values. Like, I'm not surprised that's getting used. That's a vulnerability from this year. No surprise it's being abused by attackers. But something's old stuff for sure. When if you get bored, like anyone on this uh, call, it, that's just like the 25 like CVE reports are just like another long wind of like things that they've been doing. Like I think all this came really from like a report that the DOD put out in September that I can probably find, but it's a big old pile of 200 pages of stuff. Um, and they kind of detail like the future of the Chinese capabilities. So I assume that this is kind of that continued pressure to be like, here you go, see. We, I think there's even like some indictments in September against some Chinese hackers. So I feel like this is just one of those things that's just another like sticking your tongue out uh, at China from the DOD standard, you know? But Yeah, definitely could be. Uh, was there anything in here that kind of stood out to you? Like any of these vulnerabilities or something else? I think, uh, you know, if I had to be honest with you, besides obviously what we just talked about, like some of these older ones, I think what surprised me is that, you know, 
I don't know if it's just, I don't want to say surprised. It kind of cracked me up, like, you know, the F5 stuff and a lot, like, the big IP and a few of the other more well-known CVEs that are out. Like, it's nice that they warned people, but I also have, like, in the back of my head, I go and say, okay, the, everything that they've kind of pushed people towards is, like, the NIST standard, which is how, you know, people in the government are supposed to be protecting information, right? So I, I'd be very curious at how fast, like, you know, they were able to weaponize a lot of these attacks because it wasn't, didn't, like, five big name exploits come out or phones come out in like a week or two right part of that you know big ip stuff coming out and a few of the other ones named vulnerabilities am i crazy yeah well i'm not sure about big ip in particular we've definitely had a few name vulnerabilities i want to say two episodes ago we covered a bunch of named phones i don't think that's quite what you're talking about but i know around the time zero login or log on came out I think there were quite a few other named phones at the same time that we just kind of had to choose, pick and choose what we were actually going to cover on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I guess in any way, shape or form, you know, I, I think it's interesting. And my theory is that, like, again, they're kind of putting the pressure on China, but I think it's weird. I, I don't know how often I see people going like pile driving a list home of like, hey, here's exactly what's going on. Like in a lot of it. It's not the same as like what I sometimes attribute to APTs, like the desktop targeting, right? Like spear phishing and, you know, trying to attack specific users. Like this really looks like them targeting the perimeter and trying to work their way in from there. Um, at least from what I can tell, right? Is that is that crazy? Is that wrong? No, this see. definitely seems kind of like what's targeting the enterprises themselves and their hardware and not local users. Yeah, so I think that's a good thing to take a look at for anyone like, you know, who cares to read between the lines is like this isn't just the normal like hey you have a you know some type of pdf exploit or this and that like this is really you know nation state targeting your perimeter so they don't even have to really likely target your users in the same manner so something must have prompted all this is, is also my second guess and with the uptick in like ransomware and all this other crap something had to push this out there that's all i'm curious of is what was that final straw that broke the back you know yeah we're not going to find that out of course like they're not going to say oh yeah this happened and this happened but yeah there's usually something that's uh leading to these sorts of release from the nsa if the nsa does want to tell me i'm always happy to listen i promise that you can <laughs> just email me like uh, i think i still got a nokia you can text me on my nokia it's all good yep i'm, I'm so sure the nsa is listening in this is something that i found kind of weird and i don't know if this is a common thing they mentioned the CVEs and they even put out like a little infographic that was kind of cool. Uh, they grouped together like the types of bugs and what kind of access they could get you and listed it in order of risk. Um, but they did seem to, they mentioned that these like threat actor groups are, are using these CVEs, but they don't name any of the threat actor groups, which I thought was kind of weird. I, I would think they would want to name them to tie them to those bugs, like what we often see from. Uh, from other organizations not necessarily the nsa but i don't know auntie is that like a common thing of just uh mentioning the cves and leaving the threat actor names out sort of i mean again i wouldn't say that if you look at the past few years alone nsa has already been a little more crazy when it comes to attribution and kind of helping out everyone else but you know that's why i was kind of going with the the china angle you know where if you look at like in September, there was some indictments against like a group known as I think APT 41 was the was the group um, where, you know, it's like a, I think four or five uh, nationals that they charged with hacking, hacking like hundreds of companies or something to that effect. So normally I, I could be wrong, but, you know, since we're not too far away from that date, 
I would assume that it's based on that, that they're kind of going saying, like, see, we put these indictments against this against this group specifically. We know who they are. And so if they knew that much, they likely knew the arsenal of what they were doing. They don't have to necessarily attribute it in the same manner of like, hey, because it, to, to not uh, go too crazy, for the most part, it's also likely that these, you know, Chinese hacking groups and like any other APT kind of move members around. So it's likely that they figured, okay, instead of just sticking it with one group or two groups, you can just assume that it's basically being leveraged by any, you know, Chinese APT group and probably, you know, wider APT group. So I think that's really what it was and not to detract from like, you know, the whole conversation spiraling into China, this and that, how do you know it's China? Like, and just saying like, hey, here you go, here's the CVEs. We literally could tell you that we're seeing get exploited. Um, and that's that, you know, so maybe it's just simplistic. Maybe it's some weird government red tape that they have to be careful. It's hard to say, honestly. But yeah, that that would be my super guess. Yeah, and I think that kind of makes sense, uh, given that they want to put the focus on those CVs, not so much on creating other drama that can then be questioned. Like if they included the attribute uh, attributions, uh, then you kind of have room for the discussion to go to be about well, how do they know that? On what base are they saying it's that? And like all of that, whereas by keeping it general, they kind of keep the information focused on the actual issues that you need to be watching out for. Yeah, no, that's that's my guess. Sometimes it's just easier to stick to the combo. Yeah, that's fair. So we'll move on to uh, low-cost penetration testing. So this person deployed an experiment by setting up a web application, kind of like a hackathon, uh, and hired seven independent pen testers to do an assessment on it to see how they'd compare in terms of uh, report quality and methodologies and whether or not they found the issue. Um, and I think that the main driving force behind this was his speculation that most pen testers just use automated tools, and he wanted to plant bugs that would uh, not be easy to catch with a automated tool that would require more manual review. So uh, he selected the pen testers based on positive reviews and their price, uh, that low cost factor being um, one person was like $400 and all the other ones were $100 or less. So, well, the actual... so all of them were, so one was $400, <clears throat> one was $100, and then the rest were 50 and under. So 50, 40, 35, 30, and even a $20 pen test. <laughs> I, I kind of get the feeling, you get what you pay for here? And I actually tweeted out about this. Uh, just my quick thoughts are that you kind of get what you pay for. I mean, even the $100 one, like that's barely, you know, an hour's work. You know, a normal pen test if you're hiring for that, 100 bucks is getting you maybe an hour's work. And that's at the low end for sure still. And only two of the pen testers even hit that. So you have to think, how much work are they doing, you know, for 20 bucks? Uh, even if they're highly rated, I'm assuming he got these off Fiverr. I'm not actually sure if that's if he stated that, but it feels like I one didn't of those. See that either. Feels like one of those Fiverr reviews. That said, uh, before I forget it, I feel like there's something suspicious going on here too. Like I feel like he had he had an angle he wanted to prove, um, and I feel like it's a little bit biased against him. Like maybe not quite as fair of an attempt as I initially thought. So when I tweeted out, I'd say like it seemed like he made everything as easy as possible to discover. I'm not, I'm less certain about that. So talking about some of the issues, one of them, when you try and log in with a bad password, 
it'll send a header in response with set cookie, but um, instead of actually being like, you know, the normal set cookie header, it's C-O-O-K-I and then no E at the end uh, with auth equals whatever. Um, and if you were to try and use that auth equals whatever token and just set it manually, so since it's since it doesn't have the E, the browser won't set that cookie. Um, it'll log you in as the admin. That is such a CTF type challenge. Now, in fairness, like I know my normal workflow, I flagged the like if I see a custom header, it gets flagged for me to take a look at. Normally, that is like a reverse proxy, uh, not stripping a header that came back. Um, it. I can't think of ever seeing something like this. I can't even think of how this would accidentally happen. Where it's a very contrived set, issue. Yeah, where you would be setting like an admin token and mistyping like the set cookie header. Like, okay, I could see mistyping the set cookie header actually, but I can't see it actually having a valid token in there. Like, it's very contrived. My normal workflow would definitely see it. But it's just such a contrived issue that, like, I feel like it should have been discovered. If they're doing manual assessment, you should have seen this, like, the custom header in there. That's fair to expect. It's just such an unfair issue, I think. Like, I think it would have been a better assessment if he had kind of some realistic issues. Uh, he did actually have one very realistic issue, uh, which is uh, cross-site scripting. However, everybody that reported it, he said, exaggerated it. It is a straightforward, reflected, post-based cross-site scripting. Um, it got reported as high, and according to him, it is over-exaggerated. I completely disagree. Uh, cross-site scripting is pretty much always an issue reflected, even if it's post. Um, that unless seems there subjective were other, to do that, too. Unless seems there were like... other mitigations. Sorry, subjective how? Like, subjective in terms of how damaging it is, or...? Well, like, faulting the uh, the pen testers for how high they give it an impact, it seems like you would want this... <clears throat> sorry, you would want this kind of experiment to be as objective as possible, in my opinion. So it's like, adding in this, like, uh, controversy with, oh, they reported that it's higher than I think it should have been, it just seems weird to include it, and it seems... But kind of like what you were saying earlier, biased against them. Yes. Well, so there's another case I'll get into that definitely seems biased, but I just want to talk about the general issues. But with this post one, like cross-site scripting is a serious issue. I thought we were kind of past the days already where people were uh, kind of denying cross-site scripting as being an issue. There definitely was a time where people would just be like, oh, it's cross-site scripting. Who cares? It's not leaking data. It's not SQL injection. Um, it's not something like that. Now it feels like most people recognize cross-site scripting is a real issue, can be abused in so many different ways. It's maybe not as high as it could be. And to be fair, like some of these pen test reports absolutely exaggerated issues. Like the first guy here, the, um, actually I think it was the second one. Um, I'm just checking my notes here. Yeah, it was the first one. Had like file guessing as one of the issues he reported, like where you can type in the browser and guess what a file name might be as a high vulnerability, high rated vulnerability, or the fact that he could run brute force on the login, which is a fair issue to report. Like you should add a capture, you should add a timeout, you should add something to prevent that, but it's not a high rated issue. It's just one of those things you could report on because it's at least being aware of it. Like as a pen tester, you might have some minor issues, um, but generally speaking, 
you want to report them so that your client has all the information they need to make a decision. Uh, you don't want to just hide and decide, oh, it's not important enough to decide or to claim. Just let them know, but don't try and over-exaggerate what the issues are. Um, a lot of these uh, pen testers also uh, talked about um, uh, the lack of the XSS protection header, which really, it's not even relevant on any of the modern browsers. So I don't feel like that really needs to be called out anymore. I thought it was funny that a number of them did and talked about how you can add this where Edge, Chrome, Firefox, pretty sure Safari, none of them support the header anymore. Like Chrome recently removed it. Firefox never supported it. I, I was just, I was just curious if you don't mind me jumping in here. Um, since I don't I don't do, you know, vulnerability assessment as a job. Um, but, you know, I, I was curious that I, I read only through it a bit and I felt like there was one thing that was thrown in at the end where, you know, it was like all the contractors except for the last one used automated tools to carry out the testing. So that's why they failed. Um, and I guess I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I maybe have to read through all of it more. And I've been kind of glancing at some of the reports and like, I guess I'm confused that are you not expected to run automated schools? Like I, tools, I know that like maybe you're expected because of the nature of the vulnerabilities in them, but I still feel like, you know, these automated tools could probably lead to discovery. If not, yes, maybe not full exploitation, but it seems like that's just a quick way to crap down on like, I paid for a hundred dollars for this person. So of course they need a scanner, but th there's definitely still a place, no? There's a place for the automated scanning. Automated scanning generally is not very good. Like running Burp or running Nessus, they might give you some findings. Um, I generally avoided a lot of automated scanning, largely because you run the risk of denial of service uh, with some of the scanners if they hit too many pages or if they, um, if the website's poorly designed, you know, has like delete as a get request, you might end up getting some of that and like deleting an entire site. Uh, recently, somebody shared one of their horror stories about running a scanner and there was a get page that would delete all the, uh, that just had links to delete all of these pages and they end up deleting their entire client's website because they ran a scanner. Uh, there are risks with a lot of that. So I like Burp's um, just the passive scanner. Um, you could still kick off some scans. I avoided a lot of scans, but it's not that scanning isn't to be used. Uh, we just really had an emphasis on if you were going to scan, you had to make sure that you were being careful about how it was targeted, making sure that it's only hitting pages you already know are going to be safe to scan and stuff. So you've already done some of that work there. Like burps useful there. Yeah, um, I guess I guess that makes sense. I just mean, you know, I wasn't sure if it was more the automated like exploitation tools was the thing that made them kind of crappy or more of like the automated discovery and like enumeration. Like is that kind of difference here? Is that like if you're using SQL map to carry out the exploitation, that's what this author is considering like bad or no every he's considering like the automated scanning um as being back see particular calls out nessus and burp i mean burp does have the intruder part of the application which you can kind of say is automated attacking but generally both of them nessus and burp will do the scan just looking for certain issues they're not actually going to like dump the database like sql map might Okay. So that's his complaint, and that's because a lot of companies uh, 
will straight up um just run that report and provide it to the end client. Oh yeah. Uh, no. That said, I am going to try and tackle chat uh NeoX quick. Uh what do, BF scanning. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh basically what I'm saying, I'm not saying that burp shouldn't be used. If burp's part of like if burp scanning is part of your workflow, by all means use it. I'm just saying that sometimes when you're doing an application assessment, you do have to be concerned. Oh, brute force. Um, no, like there's a place for doing that. I'm just talking about my own experience and workflow where we would have to be concerned about, for example, taking down production. Uh, when you actually have, you know, that in your scope with the client where you've got to take care not to do that, you've got to take care in terms of what you're actually testing. So you have to structure the burp scan so that it's not going to just go wild and hit everything. Uh, you generally do need to be a little bit wary about like spidering everything. It depends on the case. Some cases it's totally fine. Some it's not. Uh, I'm just talking from my own experience doing these assessments. I tended to prefer just using the passive and doing a lot more manual work and using my own scripts for some of the automated stuff where I'd fire it off and really know this is exactly what's going to happen. I know what my scripts do. That's my own workflow. But, you know, everybody has their own thing. So, like, burp scanning's part of it. It's just, it shouldn't be the only thing, which is, I think, what this author kind of cared about. Where this author, you know, cared. Like, there are companies, as I kind of mentioned already, that literally only perform an Nessa scan, take the output, maybe re reformat it to look like their own company. And just hand it to a client. Don't even do any further work. And charge, you know, like crazy for that. That's an issue in the industry. Uh, basically, they're, they're not providing any real value to the client if they're not actually doing any sort of verification or anything in addition to that. And as you get more expense of, the work tends to get a lot more manual. Uh, you tend to start having a lot more um, experienced people and applying their expertise to look at the issues. And then that, of course, costs more, but you don't want to, that sort of assessment, you don't want to pay, a, or you don't want to spend a lot of time hiring somebody to do that when you have a lot of low-level issues. So, like, those automated scans are good for catching those really stupid issues before you start paying a ton of money for somebody to do the more in-depth research. So, like, there is a place for it. That's kind of a long-winded way, I think, to get back to you, Andy, is there is a place for the scans. I think this guy's issue, though, was just kind of trying to come out against that, uh, those automated things. Because, I mean, at 20 35 bucks, you're not going to spend a lot. Like, it's not worth it to spend a lot of time on anything. Yeah, uh, I guess that, that was the point. I was just curious. That is, like, what really the expectations were for, like you kind of said, <laughs> for 20 bucks. I'm not, I don't think I'm paying someone that's going to understand the nuance and HTTP and how this, you know, specific parameter, like, I, I don't think they're going to understand much. So I would only expect scans. And I'm guessing that the, the message at the end of it is just really that, like, you know, for companies that kind of skirt paying out for a good, you know, pen test, they just go and pay some goofball 20 bucks and go, there you go. We got a guy who ran a scan. But I, I do feel like it, this probably could have been done or, done better in some way, shape or form. But yeah, I, I think that it all makes sense, really. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Serial Wal Walrus mentions you you pay for what you get. 
Um, or I'd rather say that you get what you pay for, but same idea. Uh, when you're paying so cheap, you're just not getting very much. Uh, that said, some of these people do claim like having a Bachelor's of Science, Computer Science, having CEH, OSCP, you know, nine years, 20 years of experience. Uh, anyway, to touch on the other issues, um, so we already talked about that set cookie issue. That was one of the critical issues to this author. The other one was a SQL query that had a hard-coded but obfuscated password in there. If you're watching, you can kind of see this crazy amount of if and comparisons with various function calls that ends up generating this, ultimately generating this string of, um, what is that, like quote or percent, quote, percent, uh, single quote equals single quote percent as some of the valid characters or some of the valid passwords you could use in this query. I didn't bother trying to deobfuscate myself to see what I'd have come up with. I'd say like, so this would happen when you entered a wrong password, it would show you this query that was run. Um, so this is where the cross-site scripting was also found because the query that was run, if you included um, HTML tags in your password, like a script tag, you would get the cross-site scripting. So this is where a lot of the pen testers reported cross-site scripting. Uh, but the fact that this SQL query is shown there, it has normal SQL injection. Um, you know, if you do the classic single quote or one equals one type setup, you'll get a injection there. So that's the other issue that people would find. One of them is also in the error page, it'll show a link to util.sh which has the script and this is something where i i feel like the author's being disingenuous a little bit in terms of, he makes a claim and he specifically calls out uh person five for not finding any of the issues and he has this list here did not run malicious binary and has this he's the only one that gets this x marks uh not running the malicious binary here's the issue if you take a look at the example code that he has for what the util.sh script was, it is a wget to the ip slash mal or chmod plus x dot slash mal or, well, pipe, I guess I should be saying, not or, pipe chmod pipe uh, executing the dot slash mal binary. So it looks like that line of code, if you were to run it when it gets evaluated, will execute the downloaded file. What was interesting, though, is in two of the reports, they report this as um, an information disclosure type issue. And if we actually take a look, um, I'm trying to find there. It was Pentester 5 has it. I'm just going to pull up their report here. Uh, these reports are not good examples of how you should do your own report. A lot of them are fairly poor grammar and formatting but if you take a look here at that same line sql underscore three only has a wget it doesn't or it doesn't ch uh, it doesn't ch mod it it doesn't uh pipe to actually executing it it only grabs the file which actually i just noticed it only grabs the dot sh it only grabs a mel dot sh so this might have been the, this is probably the code that they were seeing and the author changed what was being shown uh, to make his own report look like it was worse than what it actually was. He probably just oh. saw those that actually made the call to the 
battle file. I never um, noticed that. That's wild. You yeah, played yourself, dog. Yeah, that kind of that makes me feel a lot different about this whole report. At first, like I said, I felt like okay, you know, he made it easy to find the issues, but if he's lying about this, you know, what else is he also not quite being honest about? Well, there is something else I wanted to jump back on, was the second issue you were saying was an SQLI. From what I could read, it, it wasn't like an actual SQL injection, it was simulated. They did a hard-coded check for that uh, quote or one equals one. So, it, the problem I have with that is, I see this in CTF challenge to, challenges too, and I hate it. It is kind of guesswork. There are multiple ways that you can test for SQLI that might not be the uh, the or one equals one trick, because some people don't even bother using that because that will be filtered out. Now, if you take um, a look here, um, take a look at the query, you'll see where password one, two, three. That's where the password ended up going. This is the query that was showing where, you know, it has just password and quotes there, but it looks like it was an actual, like you could inject into that part of it. So uh, where right I was confused there. was they do mention um, in It's a also hard-coded. There's also this big hard-coded password as another issue. Okay, okay. So like I, it, I, I was you're hard -coded. the two of them. Yeah, there's this hard-coded obfuscated thing, which again, if I were only spending an hour doing this assessment, I'd be like, huh, that's really interesting. Maybe try and quickly figure it out. Like I'd maybe toss this into my own uh, SQL server or, well, my SQL, whatever, whatever type query this was. Um, I'd maybe toss that onto my own system just to see what it gave me. But if I didn't get anywhere too quickly with that, this is not something I'd spend a lot of time on. If I only have an hour, I want to get decent coverage over everything. Like, And I'm just assuming spending an hour here. But I was about to say the same thing. That seems like he or she, I don't know what the author is. They uh, obfuscated it. And like, I don't know, man, I've done enough CTFs that when I see shit like that, I'm like, okay, we'll jot that down. But I'm not about to spend time, especially if someone's only paying you 20, 30, 50 bucks and you only have like an hour or two, I assume, you know, is someone really going to go through that amount of effort that I know he's saying it takes only basic, you know, knowledge of SQL syntax, but you could say the same thing about like anything like, oh yeah, this this you know binary once you just understand basic c it's not that complicated but if it's like you know packed or crypted well no it's a lot more work you know i know this is a little different but that's how i feel like it's kind of like what you said at the beginning like this feels more like a ctf as opposed to like normal what i would consider something you'd see in a pen test you know in, so it's in fairness yeah. um like these testers are claiming to offer like a full pen test so like that is a fair thing that like they should still dig into it. Like if I were doing an assessment, like I would absolutely be spending time looking into this. I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm only spending an hour, this goes back, this goes on the back burner until I finish everything else. Um, if it's not something I immediately am able to decrypt or decode in this case. Um, that's, fair. That's, that's, fair. that's how I prioritize it. But yeah, like if you're doing a full assessment, you absolutely should uh use this um out of chat was asked uh, don't you think sql map would catch this i think one of the testers actually mentions using sql map um i feel like something didn't work with sql map but it might just been them not getting it not getting it right like not using it correctly i'm not sure about that um 
either way one of the testers does mention trying to use sql map i forget if they were successful or not with that uh but this is a place where you could use sql map to kind of drop the rest of the database uh one thing i will say in fairness like this wasn't a full application it was only this login page uh, so that limits how much you can actually do with this or not how much you can actually do it limits the test surface it limits where you're actually looking for issues uh, so again that does mean you should have more time uh, to break down this query but it is something where it's like that's really interesting and i want to look at it but given the time constraints my priority is going to be getting full coverage rather than dropping down the rabbit holes that's at least how I tend to approach them. That's it. I mean, a lot of things are just kind of interesting. Like the results are still interesting from this. A lot of the testers not finding issues reporting, very kind of fluffy issues, just not doing very well. Uh, but I guess as we've said a few times, you just kind of get what you pay for. Overall, though, I'm, I'm, I am not a huge fan of this article just because it seems the issues are just so contrived. It's not something you come across in a real assessment. And in that way, I do feel it. it's sort of unfair. Um, but and yeah, like there is a sampling bias because of those going after, you know, lower cost freelance uh, pen testers. Yeah, so thank you, GNU Coding Cafe uh, for the raid. Someone did sub as well, um, but I didn't get a chance to see. Oh, who. did I? Oh, it doesn't look like I missed a sub. I think somebody followed, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the follow as well. Oh, sorry. Follow. I'm, it's okay. I know how to use Twitch, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, with this, I, once I saw like that malicious file change, it just completely changed the tone of everything to this author just doesn't seem to be playing fairly. It's totally yeah. possible that like there's a benign explanation, but just going from what I see here, it just raises so many questions as soon as you see that change. Um, like I couldn't Suspected. believe it was actually there when I saw it when I was going through the reports. It's like, what the heck is this? But yeah, I, it's. I mean, it's I, definitely CTF-ish. Sorry, Auntie, go ahead. No, you're good. I just thought that's once you said it though, that like 100% has made me question the validity of any of this because like. I don't know, man. It's just, it's one of those things that like, you got to kind of keep consistent. If yeah, suddenly there's a big difference between like this thing gets downloaded, executes and hey, this thing kind of gets downloaded. And maybe that's, it, it is a weird thing, but I did like my last toss into it was like how some of the people did talk about CEH, right? They had certified ethical hacker and some talked about OSCP. Like I'd love to genuinely, like if you bought these services, like as opposed to just taking the word like, hey, can you give me proof? Like, can you give me, you can look these numbers up as far as I understand. So I would be very curious if it's actually legitimate what these people say um, because of the fact that like, I don't have the CEH or OSCP, but as far as I know, the OSCP would probably make you prepared for this, but CEH actually comically, I can't imagine it really, at least from the people that have it, really showing you how to get more nuanced with phone scanning or you know, discovery, it would probably just be more like, here's exactly what these people are doing. Like, here's a tool to use, scan for it and automatically exploit it. Like, I, I can't imagine it does more than that, quite frankly, but I could totally be wrong. I just thought it was interesting. I wish there was more. I, I want to know more about the sampling, if I'm being honest. Like, is this from Fiverr? Is this from some hacking forum? Or is it, you know, seven dudes you ran into down at the pub? Like, I'd be very fascinated <laughs> to know. Yeah, that, that's a that's definitely a fair point. So. I think we'll end off on a 
uh, another funny issue. Uh, someone tried reporting an XSS vulnerability to uh, WP Scan. Um, it's it's a video on on Twitter from WP Scan themselves. Uh, basically, it seems like they just use Burp Suite to inject HTML into the the response page for a login request. Um, I think this is what true hacking looks like, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but um, yeah, kind of a funny tweet to end off on. Uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, C, but uh, very interesting what this person tried to pass off as an XSS. <laughs> I think they earned the bounty, to be honest with you, okay? It did pop up on screen, and as far as my training has taught me, if it pops up on the screen, well, that's how you know that it's actually 100% legitimate. So, I mean, come on. This definitely earned it. I don't know what this, these guys are talking about. This kind of reminds me of people, like, in school or whatever, who used, like, inspect element on government pages to say they defaced them. That's kind of what this reminded me of, Bit of a bit of a throwback. You know, the best times, you know, where someone, yeah, it's exactly that. They screenshot like they did the inspect element. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. But I wonder if they legitimately didn't know, because I feel like there's definitely a point in my life where I didn't know, like, probably, you know, 10 years ago or something where, I mean, I don't know, I might have been dumb enough to think the same thing. I'm like, oh, I got it. I have to, guys. We're good. It's like, oh, wait, wait a second. Wait a second here. This only works for me. I don't understand. <laughs> so I could imagine... I could imagine this person thinking, oh, we are seeing the video. That's awesome. I like that we get to watch them like you get to watch your grandparents Google how to get to a website and slowly but surely. How to heck. <laughs> this, is, this is good. I like it. This is, uh, man, this is fun. It's almost like exactly shoulder, shoulder surfing someone uh, on your first day of learning how to be an hacker. This is awesome. What I thought was kind of funny was in the video how they go through all these different things, like putting in the or equals, like the you know classic SQLI uh, test string, and then they go into inspect element, and then they go into burp suite. Like they, they just do so many redundant things, I guess, to make it look more impressive than it is. I tried defusing the bomb, but instead <laughs> I started scrib like scribbling on the wall. You're like, okay, I don't what? <laughs> what are you doing here, man? It seems like intentionally confusing to, to make it seem like, you know, super complex. I, I got a good chuckle out of that. I like it. I hope that it's just like, I don't know if I want to be a troll or not. I kind of just want it to be real because I like their style of like, <laughs> let me show you all the other stuff I did before I show you what I really did. Uh, <laughs> that's, I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. So we do have some shout outs. Uh, unfortunately, it seems we're, we're having some technical issues. Uh, Z has a few shoutouts, but he can't actually talk right now. So um, I'll just mention them. I, I don't have much to say on them because they're not my shoutouts, but I, I do still want to make sure they make it through. Um, so yeah, we have the uh, the Mitra adversarial threat matrix and the Twitch uh, Al Hazard uh, shoutout. So Z, I know I think your audio is going through to the stream, but it's not coming through to us. So I'll let you do the shoutouts here, and then. Uh, and then we'll end the episode after the shoutouts. I don't know if I hear his audio um, through the stream, but I could be wrong. And I, I don't think I hear it. Yeah, I don't think his audio is going through the stream either. He, he said it was, but uh, I, I'm not hearing it either. So anyway, no, I guess I was, I was saying was... your audio wasn't coming through. Mine definitely was not. Uh, we were definitely having an issue audio issues there so we are definitely um, coming back, back on the stream now, now. yes yeah 
Awesome. No worried. Yeah, I was actually talking for several minutes, and that was, and then I realized <laughs> nobody's coming through. <laughs> I was wondering why you were not talking for so long. I figured you would have had thoughts on that last topic. So yeah, so I, I'm sorry. I don't actually know what either of you two said about the last topic, but I mean, this is just such a stupid thing. Obviously, the guy's trying to scam. I assume you brought up the fact that this seems like a scam. Yeah. Uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> just talking about how it, it's kind of like people in school who use like inspect element to pretend like they were hacking um and going through like how they, they were making it seem a lot more complex than what they were actually doing you know trying sqli and then opening up inspect element and doing all these weird things when all they were doing was editing html into the response <laughs> like, yeah it was, it was just kind of funny it's taking like that self xss to a whole new level yeah it's a good way of putting it um but yeah now that we are fully back uh we we will end off on the shout outs uh that you have z yeah, so of the shoutouts here, um, one of them was that Mitri put out an advanced threat or an adversarial ML threat matrix. So we've talked, we haven't talked about them so much anymore, just because a lot of the machine learning stuff is just not an area of expertise for any of us. But they are still interesting issues. So they put out a, an attack matrix essentially about several like various stages of your attack and some of the things that ML is generally going to be vulnerable for that you need to kind of test for. I just wanted to shout out the fact that, you know, this exists, it's out there. It's just a good little reference to take a look at, see what they're saying, especially if you're just getting started. It kind of gives you gives you the keywords to look for and what to kind of learn about and dig into yourself. Uh, so I want to kind of give that as a shout out. And then the last shout out that I actually had was a Twitch channel. A new streamer recently started, uh, I want to say a week, week and a half ago, they started streaming, I believe, um, El Hazred. Uh, they do kind of, you'll see on screen if you're watching, he was playing Amnesia, but his other streams have been more hacking and security related. I've enjoyed hanging out in his streams, watching him go through the struggle, and I appreciate that he includes the struggle when he's trying to work on generally hack the box. It is a little bit more, or a little bit more similar to pen testing rather than the like exploit development that we go for, but still enjoying them, like go through the struggle there, including that in there, not making everything just look easy or skipping over the research aspects. Uh, so yeah, I just kind of recommend to check him out. I've been enjoying his streams and just want to give him a little shout out. And that is, since I said Al Hazred, that's A-L-H-4-Z-R-3-D. Uh, obviously as usual, link's going to be in the description though. All right, so we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VODs on Twitch or on YouTube at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday after the stream. Uh, we also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more links on Anchor that you can check out. Uh, be sure to keep a lookout for our discussion video going up on YouTube on Thursday this week regarding uh, programming languages and which ones are useful to know for different things in security. Um, you can also check out our Discord and follow us on Twitter if you want to get involved in the community. Other than that, we will be back again next Monday at the same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, for episode 51. And we will see you guys then.